Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Real problem is this, James. In two decades, there will be 7 billion human beings on this planet. Most of them brown, yellow, or black. All of them hungry. All of them determined to love. They'll swarm out of their breeding grounds into Europe and North America. Hence Vietnam. An all-out effort there will give us control of South Asia for decades to come. And with proper planning, we can reduce the population to 550 million by the end of the century. I know. I've seen the data. We sound rather like gods reading the doomsday book, don't we? Well, someone has to do it. Not only will the nations affected be better off, but the techniques developed there can be used to reduce our own excess population. Blacks, Puerto Ricans, Mexican-Americans, poverty-prone whites, and so forth. Sixteen years of that Vietnam thing. And then a white man, Mr. George, uh, I think McGovern, I think, no, it wasn't him. I can't think of his name. Secretary of Defense. He said it was all waste. Every bit of it was wasted because it was completely unnecessary. People in Vietnam now sitting up, I mean, you know, going to McDonald's eating hamburgers and whatnot. So what was all that killing about? Nothing. Yeah, you can go to Vietnam and, and you know, they got the Golden Arches right there in Ho Chi Minh City. So what was all that killing about? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Bombs cost a lot of money. Our next report from 2000 concerns a man we first examined 10 years ago, Dr. Michael Swango. Back then, Dr. Swango was about to be released from prison after serving two years for poisoning his co-workers. Some believed he was innocent. Others thought he was still dangerous. Few could have imagined that today, Michael Swango would be considered one of the most prolific serial killers in American history. That's right behind me. Okay. When Dr. Michael Swango makes the rounds, patients seem to die unexpectedly. Investigators suspect he's murdered a dozen people, maybe more. People who know him say Swango's brilliant, dangerous, and a really nice guy. He was very gregarious uh, and charming, and, and uh, many psychopaths are like that. Thirteen years ago, Judge Dennis Cashman presided over Swango's trial for poisoning five of his co-workers. I thought I was going to die. I thought my head was going to explode. Lonnie Long, Brent Unmissig, and Swango were working together as paramedics here in Quincy, Illinois, when Swango secretly spiked their donuts, tea, and soda with ant poison. That's basically sugar and arsenic. Mike would call on the phone 
and ask uh, questions of my symptoms. How many times had I vomited? He'd even ask questions on uh, what color my vomit was. There were other signs that Swango was fascinated by poison and death. After he was caught poisoning the paramedics, Illinois police went to his house to search for evidence. They found kitchen cabinets stacked not with food, but with poisons, all kinds, and books that showed different ways to kill people. There was ant poison, gopher poison, insect poison, mouse poison. The rest were chemicals to make poison and syringes. But to me, the most damning find was the recipe cards. You don't find these in most kitchens. This one's for ricin, a poison which at the time was virtually impossible to detect. He also had castor beans, which are used to make ricin. Still, all this evidence was just circumstantial. And as far as the prosecution knew, no one had died. So they just charged Swango with aggravated battery. Judge Cashman sentenced him to the maximum that charge allows, just five years. Did you think that would be the end of it? Not really. There was nothing about him that suggested to me that this was a one-time event. Uh, it was something that was in his being. Did he make you nervous, personally? He made me uneasy just because he was so cold. I have no excitement over human suffering and death. None, none whatsoever. I met Swango in prison while he was serving time for poisoning the paramedics. He was appealing the verdict, claiming the evidence was tainted. I'm a fighter, and I hope that we can show that a tragic, tragic mistake has been made. Why all the poisons in your house? There were not a lot of you know, poisons in my house. I, there, was, there was the ant poison and the gopher poison and rodent poison and mouse poison and cyanide and... No, sir. No, sir. There was no cyanide in my house, and I, I okay. strongly... I made, no, sir. That's, I, I, made I, I strongly arsenic? resent that. Arsenic? Arsenic is an ant poison, yes, sir. All I know is I had an ant problem, and I took care of it as best I could. Well, I, I questioned Swango for more than three hours. Oh, can I have some more water, please? Sure. I'm, still, we're all, we're I'm really not tired. I'm not tired. I'm just thirsty. You know, I, uh... He was very cheerful, relaxed, friendly. Of course, he never admitted poisoning anyone, so there was no answer to everyone's question. Why? What did he have to gain? Swango was friends with most of the paramedics he poisoned. He'd worked with them for years while putting himself through medical school. His fellow paramedics say Swango was often strange. He was always talking about death and destruction. And He'd collect uh, uh, clippings from newspapers all over the United States and uh, on the disasters and uh, fatalities. And do all of them? He'd put them in a scrapbook. One he, he entitled Trauma on the Highways. It was nothing but car accidents, uh, trailer trucks smashing into cars. It was simply a scrapbook. That's nothing more, nothing less. The McDonald's massacre, he thought that was great. That summer, a gunman had walked into McDonald's in California and killed 21 people. He turned up the volume as loud as he could and just stood there and watched the TV about three feet away. Make a room, please. Make way, make way. And as soon as the program was over, he turned around and just jumped around, looked at us, just started clapping and you, um, laughing. He goes, man, this, wouldn't it be just great just to be there and see it all? In prison, Swango behaved well and was out in three years. Now, you might think or hope that a young doctor convicted of poisoning people wouldn't be allowed to go on to treat other patients. But Swango has gone on to hospital after hospital, 
hired by fellow doctors who didn't bother to check the most basic facts of his past. Let us tell you more about what they could have easily found out. When Swango was arrested for poisoning the paramedics, local authorities did a background check on him. They were astonished to discover that the year before, when Swango was an intern at Ohio State, he'd been suspected of causing several patient deaths, but that the hospital had conducted its own investigation and then kept it quiet, not even telling its own police force. There were seven deaths on the floor where Swango was assigned. The normal number is two or three. Two others almost died with symptoms that could have been poisoning. Rena Cooper was one, and she's convinced that Swango tried to kill her. As he came around the foot of my bed, he inserted something with his face still averted from me. I'll look what I guess. She then felt a paralysis, she says, that started at the IV and quickly moved up her arm to the rest of her body. She had trouble breathing. There was no feeling in my arms or body. A voice said, when it reaches your other elbow, you'll die. And I shook the bed rail with my right hand, which was already resting on it, violently. And that's the last I remember. The patient in the next bed saw Rena struggle and screamed. And it was her screaming that saved me from dying. She was resuscitated, and they asked her what happened. Because of her breathing tube, she couldn't speak, so she gestured for a pencil. And I wrote this note. He put something in my IV. If it hadn't been for the note in my medical records, they would have said it never happened. She says that because the hospital's investigation of the incident has led some people to believe that Ohio State didn't really want to learn the truth. And above all, it didn't want anyone else to hear claims of a doctor poisoning people at their hospital. The hospital never called the police. Instead, it conducted its own investigation and kept it quiet. We should have called the state police in. But University Administrator Donald Boyanowski was a member of the committee that investigated the alleged poisoning. Now, if you went to a police station and said, I've got two witnesses that this guy tried to kill me, there would have been a criminal investigation. Instead, Ohio State called in their lawyers and asked two doctors to investigate. Swango gave three different stories about what he was doing that night, but they never asked him to explain that. They did question Rena Cooper and said she gave a description that didn't match Dr. Swango. I don't think I said that. I think at that time, words were trying to be put in my mouth. No one ever checked Rena's IV. In fact, they never even kept it. In the end, the hospital simply ruled that she'd had a seizure and that she was confused about the incident. Ohio State did tell Swango he couldn't continue his medical education there, but the university recommended that he be licensed to practice medicine. One of the doctors who investigated him went on to describe Swango's relationship with patients as good. That doctor refused to talk to us. The university says its doctors acted in good faith and did all they could because they couldn't prove that Swango had poisoned anyone. Think he killed people? <sighs> yes, I, I... I believe so, yes. And Proving it, I can't. Former Ohio State Police Chief Peter Hearn only found out about Swango after he left Ohio and poisoned the people in Illinois. I think he's very unique. But very, very sick. Hearn's investigation lasted more than a year. 
Bodies were dug up, but by then the trail was cold. I did not do these things. It's just simply beyond my, beyond the sort of person I am to even think about doing something like that. It's hard to believe you. Well, I'm sorry if that's the case. But that doesn't mean I'm angry with you that you don't believe me. I wish you would, but I have no bad feelings about that. Do you know some people are scared of you now about your getting out? I'm sorry about that. There's certainly no reason for anybody to be scared. None whatsoever. Double O Swango. License to Kill. Catherine Massey Book Club. Context of White Supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy racism for non-white people victims of racism today's date thursday october 26 2023 so i have been told this is our second installment on james b stewart's blind eye the terrifying story of a doctor who got away with murder picking up in chapter two, wanted to make sure that I got in. Number one, recognize condolences to the family of the late Richard Roundtree, uh, passed away this week at the age of 81, which is ancient history uh, for a black male. Uh, I'm bringing this up because we read, in fact, I think it was two years ago, autumn of 2021, about this time, two years ago, we were reading Ernest Tidyman's Shaft. I think that is so important. Again, it was unanimous. Every black person that I asked, including Neely Fuller Jr., they were unaware that Shaft is the creation of a white man. In the Catherine Massey Book Club, check the archives, but again, condolences to the great Richard Roundtree. Invest. If you think the cows is constructive, hit the blog racism-notes.blogspot.com. PayPal button in the top right corner. You'll see the links for Cash App Venmo as well as PayPal. Cash App address is cash.app forward slash dollar sign the cows. Huge thanks to all the folks who kept us broadcasting for 14 plus years hopefully constructive information even some literary knowledge now the audio we heard at the top from the film it's been 50 years uh, since the film executive action uh, was released Uh, this is a drama not a documentary uh, but a drama about the Vietnam War and specifically about the assassination of John F. Kennedy uh, now, Dr. Kamal Kamban recommended that film, but we just heard that quick snippet where they talk about a part of the motivation for the Vietnam conflict. We got to control these non-white people and we need a strategic military location to control population of non-white people well into the future. That was followed by a very brief snippet. Neely Fuller Jr., ProduceJustice.com. Uh, him, hey, all of this, 
all of this money for what? What did we get other than killing lots of non-white people, dump a little Agent Orange and all these other bombs and things? What did we get? Got McDonald's there now and everything. Dennis Rodman even going to hang out over there. Anyway, <clears throat> that was the first two. The last segment, that was from the Justice Files. Now, there are lots of documentaries on Michael Swango. I mean, lots. Uh, but the Justice Files, that is about 20 years old at this point. I thought that was, was important uh, for a number of reasons. I'll get to the most important uh, at the end. Uh, but one, really, James Beach Stewart is going to come through as we read more one of the most important points of the book, he said they didn't, or in the Justice Files segment, they didn't bother to check the most basic facts of Dr. in quotes, Dr. Swango's past. How white is that? You think if that had been Leroy, Jamal, Asada, you think they would have failed to check the most basic facts of someone who's a convicted felon? Come on, that is going to come up big time as the book proceeds. Lucy, let me. Uh, and the reason that I played this segment this week, that part at the end, Rena Cooper. They have a dramatization of Rena Cooper in Unsolved Mysteries. I started uh, this book segment, Blonde Eye, with a little bit from a snippet from Unsolved Mysteries on Michael Swango. They dramatize Rita Cooper, but they have her portrayed by a white female actress. Justice Files, they actually speak to the authentic Rena Cooper, who was still alive at the time when they filmed all of this. And I think James B. Stewart, he was able to speak to Rena Cooper as well. When I saw her, I said, whoa, I think Rena Cooper is a black female. Whoa. Now, we started this book last week I said why do we even think we started first paragraph white man putting a needle in the rectum of a black male an African male no less so huh why do we think we start right there Rena Cooper we got to pay attention to that as we roll do we get racial classifications of the people who get killed that would be significant too same thing we said with Lucy Ledby but oh man so he tries to kill Rena Cooper we think Instead of them doing a thorough investigation, Michael Swango said, well, you know, you know, she's a little crazy. You know, they go in the operations and they get these sedatives and things and they go under anesthesia. And yes, they're a little batty. You can't believe what a Negro woman says. And they take that. They go to interview Rena Cooper, who looks like a black female to me. And she says, that's not what I said. I think that they were trying to put words in my mouth. Metaphor, but wee, I know what you are saying. Now, to me, that is we're being deceptive. We are not going to accurately record what you said for the record. We will just put down whatever we want to. And who are you? Oh, nigga woman, we should have let you die. Call it natural causes or sprinkle some crack on you. But man, pay Rena Cooper. Pay attention. Do we get a racial classification? All of that. Anyway, and we heard the P word. Did you hear the P word? Did you hear the P word? Psychopath. Told you that one was coming. Last but not least, 
I was able to get much obliged to man oh man much obliged to Z's mommy for her fantastic job last week soon as the program concluded and I uploaded the audio I got dozens of emails from our black brothers and sisters across the pond on the continent the Zimbabweans were furious they said they would not tolerate another second of the Shona language culture being butchered by some pretend Negro woman narrating the broadcast uh, and our Zimbabwean brothers and sisters immediately pitched in to get the unabridged audiobook version of Blind Eye. They said they could not tolerate another instant. No offense, much obliged to our black brothers and sisters on the continent. That said, Z did a phenomenal job. Z's mommy, excuse, did a phenomenal job. Thank you for her opening installment. We did get the entire unabridged. In fact, last thing I get in, so the stat, the abridged version of this book is five and a half hours. The unabridged version that I now have is 12 and a half hours. What's in the seven hours that they removed, you think? Catherine Massey Book Club, Context of White Supremacy, Blind Eye, audio segment one. We don't read, or excuse me, we don't read abridged books for a reason. Bob vacated the house as ordered. His brothers seemed stunned into silence. Michael didn't even say goodbye. Muriel showed no emotion at his departure, saying only that it had been his father's decision and it was his duty to accept it. The next morning, less than 24 hours after arriving, Virgil left for Vietnam. Bob lived with friends in Quincy, and then with his half-brother Richard in Florida for the summer. The following fall, Muriel relented and, without telling Virgil, let Bob live at home temporarily while he continued his studies at Quincy College. She also paid his tuition. But after his sophomore year, he dropped out and hitchhiked to Oregon, leaving home this time for good. Bob never saw his father again, nor did he see Michael until Virgil's funeral. In the tumultuous waning days of America's involvement in Vietnam... Virgil was placed in charge of evacuating the cities of Nha Trong and Quy Nhon. North Vietnamese troops had cut off the road from Nha Trong to the airport. So Americans, anti-communist Vietnamese, and foreign nationals had to be moved by military helicopters, which were mobbed by panicking refugees. In his nomination for an award of valor, Swanga was cited for courage, coolness, and discipline that brought the crowd under control and prevented deaths, injuries, and damage to the helicopters. He was nonetheless unable to evacuate the woman with whom he had been living. She stayed behind in the Delta. I left Vietnam in 1975 with only my boots, pants, shirt, and glasses, he later said. After the evacuation, Virgil retired from the State Department and returned home to an America bitter about the war and indifferent to its veterans. Despite the nomination, no medal ever materialized. 
Virgil confided in his sisters Ruth and Louise that he was bored with being a husband and father. Relations with Muriel remained strained, and the tensions culminated in the fight that caused Muriel to order him out of the house. Within a year of Virgil's return from Vietnam, she was granted a formal separation, though divorce proceedings were later suspended. Michael made some attempts at getting his parents to reconcile, but to no avail. Virgil moved into a mobile home that oddly replicated his quarters in Vietnam. One of his close friends from the war called him there from his bachelor party in Washington, D.C., to include Swango in the festivities. Virgil seemed touched by the gesture, but wrapped in loneliness. Swango spent his last years drinking Jack Daniels whiskey, chain-smoking cigarettes, and reading books about Vietnam. He was mugged at gunpoint one night outside the plaza, a popular Quincy restaurant and bar. Increasingly infirm from cirrhosis of the liver, he moved into the Illinois Veterans Home the year before he died. He was bitter over the American defeat and his reception as a Vietnam veteran. When the Herald Whig interviewed him for a 1979 retrospective on the conflict, he maintained that the war was lost in Washington. The enemy was aided and abetted by the anti-war attitude and knew it would eventually lead to victory. We came home the losers when we could have been the winners. In World War II, he continued, the G.I.s came home to open arms. Their jobs and sweethearts were waiting. They were heroes. In Vietnam, nothing like that happened. They came home to people who somehow blamed them for the war. After Virgil's funeral, Muriel discovered a box of books and papers that had belonged to her husband and in it she found a scrapbook of articles and photographs of car crashes, disasters, and other incidents of violent death. Knowing he would be interested, Muriel later gave the scrapbook to Michael. "'I guess my dad wasn't such a bad guy after all,' he said. Michael had had a fascination for articles about violent death since childhood, when he began clipping National Enquirer articles. He dutifully clipped articles and photographs and entered them into an ever-expanding library of scrapbooks, which probably explains why his classmates at Milliken noticed an interest in car crashes. Sometimes, when he was busy, his mother clipped and pasted the articles into the books for him. Ruth Miller thought this peculiar. She once asked Muriel why she kept articles on such grisly subjects for Michael. Muriel just shrugged and said that Michael had asked her to clip and save anything about violent death. Mike likes to keep up on these things, she explained, presumably in connection with his work in emergency medicine. Working with America Ambulance in Springfield brought Swango into regular contact with victims of car crashes, heart attacks, and violent crime. His fellow paramedics, many of whom thought highly of his work, nonetheless noted his unusual fascination with violent death and were familiar with the scrapbooks. They often saw him cutting out the articles while waiting for an ambulance call. Once, a co-worker asked him why he clipped and saved the articles. "'If I'm ever accused of murder,' he replied, "'the scrapbooks will prove I'm not mentally competent. "'This'll be my defense.' No one took this seriously." Absent his fixation on violent death, it is hard to understand why he commuted to Springfield during his first year of medical school. 
and worked up to 24-hour shifts during his second and third years, crowded with clinical and academic demands for a job that paid 10 cents above the minimum wage. Swango told fellow paramedics that he could maintain such a schedule because he subsisted on only two or three hours of sleep a night. Indeed, colleagues in the ambulance service were amazed that Swango would sleep only 30 minutes, then jump up and work for 12 hours straight, almost manic with energy. They had never seen anything like it. Even so, his work on the ambulance crew increasingly took a toll. He became so angry one day that he kicked in a cabinet door in the kitchen area of the ambulance headquarters. He had to pay for it. His long hours also affected his performance as a medical student. Whereas he had prepared feverishly during his first year, some of his fellow students now found him ill-prepared, careless, and hasty to the point of negligence, always rushing from one class or task to another, interrupting his work whenever his pager indicated he was needed for an ambulance run. Still, when it came time to apply for internships and residencies, Swango secured a glowing letter of recommendation from Dr. Waycaser, the neurosurgeon who had been his mentor, which he sent to about ten teaching hospitals. Waycaser inscribed a handwritten addendum to each copy of the letter. He'll really do a good job for you. The only time Waycaser had gone to such lengths for one of his students. Much as they do in applying to medical school, graduating medical students apply for internships and residencies through the Association of American Medical Colleges in Washington, D.C., which forwards applications to teaching hospitals with openings. After the initial screening of applications, hospitals winnow the field and conduct personal interviews with candidates who seem attractive. Then they rank the candidates, returning the list to the National Match Program, which then compares the applicant's preferences with the hospital's rankings. Every year, the third Wednesday in March is known in medical schools nationwide as Match Day. The day of the week was changed to Thursday in 1998. At noon, Eastern Standard Time, students and hospitals all over the country learn whether they have gotten their first-choice internships and candidates. It's possible for a student to receive no match at all. Though pleased, even Waycaser was surprised when Swango told him that he had been accepted for an especially prestigious internship in neurosurgery at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics in Iowa City. Given that SIU's medical school was not especially well-known, had no recognized neurosurgery program of its own, and no nationally known surgeons to serve as mentors, and awarded only pass-fail grades, Swango's success was hard to fathom, even apart from the fact that most of his classmates thought he was weird and incompetent. It was especially galling to Sweeney, the other classmate specializing in neurosurgery, and to Rosenthal, who remained the most vocal of Swango's student critics. With his postgraduate career seemingly secure, Swango all but gave up any pretense of interest in his medical studies and indulged his growing fascination with the car crashes and emergencies he encountered on the ambulance crew. All that remained at SIU was his eight-week rotation in obstetrics and gynecology, a requirement that most students completed before their last year, and that they had to pass, as they did all mandatory rotations, in order to graduate. Rather than take OBGYN early, Swango had opted for the more difficult surgery and medicine rotations, and was already concentrating on neurosurgery. 
In the OBGYN rotation, students were assigned to spend one week observing an OBGYN doctor in the community. In Swango's case, Dr. Robert Prentice. This was the doctor's first experience with an SIU student, and the school was eager for Swango to make a favorable impression. But he didn't show up. Students were also required to attend OBGYN surgeries, such as cesarean deliveries and hysterectomies. Swango was again absent. All examinations in the rotation were conducted orally. Swango missed most of them. Dr. Kathleen O'Connor was the chief resident in OBGYN at the SIU hospitals, in charge of overseeing Swango's work. An SIU graduate herself, in her fourth and last year of residency at Springfield, she became increasingly dismayed by Swango's disregard of the school's requirements. When she tried to locate him, she was told he was working as an emergency medical technician. She also heard that he had been restricted in his activities at the ambulance corps. He'd been banned from any direct patient contact, though she wasn't told why. O'Connor found this odd, but she was less concerned about Swango's performance as an EMT than she was about his absence from the rotation. When she finally caught up with him, she asked him to perform a history and physical on a patient who was scheduled to undergo a cesarean delivery. She saw him enter the patient's room and leave ten minutes later. Thus she was somewhat surprised when he promptly turned in an impressively thorough three-page write-up. Given that he had spent a mere ten minutes with the patient, the carefully written report was perhaps too complete and polished, and it raised doubts in O'Connor's mind. She visited the patient to inquire about Swango's visit, and learned that the woman had barely talked to Swango. He hadn't conducted any physical examination. He'd never even touched her. Stunned, O'Connor concluded that the entire three-page report was either a fabrication, a plagiarism from an earlier H&P by a resident, or a combination of the two. She had never encountered such behavior by a student. O'Connor took her findings to the full OBGYN faculty, which hastily convened a departmental meeting to consider Swango's status. The faculty members were appalled and angry at Swango's brazen misconduct and dishonesty which very well might have posed a threat to a patient's health. They determined to fail Swango, which meant he wouldn't graduate and wouldn't be with his classmates at the June graduation ceremony, now less than a month away. The department's determination also automatically triggered a hearing on Swango before the Student Progress Committee, one of whose members, William Roddick, happened to be the chairman of the OBGYN department. When Swango learned that he was going to fail OBGYN and wouldn't graduate, he was enraged, though outwardly he remained calm and confident. He hired a lawyer. Administrators worried he would sue the school. While the details were confidential, word that Swango had failed his OBGYN rotation and was going to be brought before the Student Progress Committee coursed through the school, causing passionate divisions among students and faculty. Wakeser rallied to Swango's defense, saying that he had been an outstanding student and that charges he was lazy or hadn't done his assignments were not believable. To fail him in the OBGYN clerkship would be disgraceful, he maintained. Dr. Murphy, Swango's professor of pathology and toxicology, became so worked up in a conversation with the dean over the injustice of Swango's plight that he burst into tears. 
At least a few students also argue that to bar Swango from graduating was too severe a punishment. It is a paradox of the medical profession that while medical schools reject hundreds and thousands of applicants, thereby dashing long-held hopes of a medical career, they almost never expel them once they've been admitted. But the turn of events also precipitated action on the part of Rosenthal and five of his classmates, now more outraged over Swango than ever. Rosenthal drafted a letter to the Student Progress Committee, urging the extreme measure that Swango be expelled. The shared experience of the rigors of medical school ordinarily creates a strong bond among classmates, one that can last a lifetime. Thus the letter was an extraordinary step for a group of students to take against a classmate. The student's letter wasn't so much triggered by the OBGYN situation, or even the mysterious deaths that seemed to follow Swango, as by a more general sense that he was incompetent. He hadn't progressed at all during their years together. He showed no interest in any patients. His attitude toward medical education seemed to border on contempt. None of the group felt they would ever want Swango to be their doctor. He was not, in their view, capable of functioning as an intern. Time was running out, and Rosenthal and the others felt that he had to be stopped. It was in this highly charged atmosphere that the Student Progress Committee convened in May 1982. Ten committee members were present, two students and eight faculty. Besides Roddick, they included Dr. Murphy and a member of Swango's class, David Chapman, who knew Rosenthal and was familiar with the letter. The immediate mandate of the committee was to review Swango's failing grade in the OBGYN clerkship. But because of the nature of the evidence, the letter from Rosenthal and Chapman's urging, the committee decided to consider expelling Swango. In preparation for the hearing, Kathleen O'Connor had gone to the patient files to retrieve Swango's report on the cesarean delivery patient. It had vanished. It suddenly occurred to her that other reports by Swango had been suspiciously thorough as well. She quickly looked for some of them in the files. They, too, were missing. O'Connor reported this to the committee. She also testified about Swango's performance in the OBGYN rotation, detailing his frequent absences and presenting the evidence suggesting he had fabricated at least one patient's history and physical, and perhaps others. Other allegations, some contained in the Rosenthal letter and others contributed by student members of the committee, also surfaced. The swan-going. Other incidents of cursory or fabricated H&Ps. His dubious performance in several classes. His work as an emergency medical technician and his fascination with violence. But there was no reference to any suspicious patient deaths or to the double O Swango nickname. That still seemed a joke, too far-fetched to be true. Swango appeared on his own behalf. He was at his most earnest and charming. He denied that he had failed to examine any patients or had removed any files. He denied plagiarizing or fabricating the caesarean patient's H&P. Almost tearfully, he explained that he had no choice but to moonlight as an emergency medical technician because his father had died earlier that year and he was virtually the sole support of his mother and two brothers. And he argued that not allowing him to graduate with the class would be a terrible hardship since he would lose his coveted internship at the University of Iowa.
Most members of the committee, especially the two student members, were unmoved. Roddick flatly called Swango a bald-faced liar and said that alone was sufficient grounds to expel him. But Dr. Murphy rallied to Swango's defense. Murphy had grown up in a large family, and he felt that competing with his siblings had given him an instinctive sympathy for the underdog. His father had also died recently. He understood and sympathized with Swango's need to support his family, and he felt other students in the class were unfairly picking on him simply because he was different. Swango had been his student, and while his performance had not been exceptional, Murphy found it entirely adequate, better than that of some other students who were going to graduate. At one point in the debate, Murphy turned to Chapman, who was arguing strenuously for Swango's dismissal, and said, "'Your whole class is full of goof-offs and jerks. Why pick on him?' Murphy had done some investigation of his own. From the records department of the maternity ward, he told the committee, he'd learned that at about the time Swango was supposedly examining the cesarean patient, another doctor had asked that student comments be expunged from patient records. That, he argued, might explain the absence of any entry by Swango on the patient's chart and the disappearance of the files. But no one investigated Swango's emotional claim that he was supporting his widowed mother and family. In fact, Muriel had a well-paid job as a business manager at the Casino Lane's bowling alley and received a pension as the widow of a military and foreign service officer. She was helping to pay for Michael's medical school education. When the deliberations ended, the committee took its vote, on which all Swango's hopes to become a medical doctor rested. Any decision to dismiss a student required unanimity. Eight members voted to expel Swango, one abstained, and one, Dr. Murphy, voted to give him another chance. Despite the outcome of the committee vote, serious concerns had been raised about Swango's character and fitness to practice medicine. Even Dr. Murphy agreed that some form of punishment was warranted, and that Swango's record should reflect what had happened. The dean and several faculty members went so far as to consult several psychiatrists, who advised them that if Swango really suffered from a significant character disorder, as some testimony suggested, or was a habitual liar, as most committee members had concluded, he would not be able to conceal these traits if he was placed under close scrutiny. It was one thing to fail Swango on the basis of certain objective criteria for a course— but the school worried that it would be difficult to defend any action taken on the basis of relatively vague concerns about his character, especially in light of the fact that Swango had a lawyer. A series of negotiations ensued between SIU's lawyers and Swango's lawyer, and a compromise was reached that averted litigation. Swango would not be allowed to graduate with his class, but neither would he be expelled or asked to withdraw. He would be required to repeat his OBGYN rotation. He would also be given assignments from some of the faculty's strictest professors and other specialties, all of them aware of the allegations against him. If he passed these assignments, he would be allowed to graduate. If not, he would be dismissed. In Quincy, Muriel Swango had been looking forward to her son's graduation for weeks, mentioning it to relatives and friends. Though she was careful about expenses, she bought a new dress for the occasion. 
To Louise Scharf and Ruth Miller, Mike's graduation seemed to fulfill all Muriel's hopes and to validate the attention she had lavished on him throughout the often lonely and painful years of her marriage. Muriel was nervous about making the two-hour highway drive to Springfield alone, so she asked Ruth to accompany her. Ruth was thrilled. No member of the family had ever received a medical degree. After the graduation ceremony, Muriel planned to host a dinner in Mike's honor, and had invited Ruth, Louise, and Louise's grandson, who was living in Springfield, to join them at the motel where Muriel and Ruth would be spending the night. Louise, too, was excited about the occasion, though more for Muriel than for Mike. Her nephew had been studying and working in Springfield for two years, but he hadn't visited or even called, and she'd seen him only once. She had been visiting a friend in the hospital and saw Mike in the corridor wearing his paramedic jacket. She called out, but he didn't respond, instead quickly walking in the other direction. She was sure he had seen her. The day before the graduation, the Springfield State Journal Register ran a list of all the graduates, and Louise eagerly scanned it for Mike's name. There was no Swango. She looked over the entire list again just to make sure. Mike's name was missing. Louise called Ruth and Quincy. Ruth, in turn, spoke to Muriel. Michael had said nothing to his mother about the troubles of the preceding weeks, and certainly nothing to indicate that he might not graduate. Ruth called Louise back, saying the newspaper must have made a typographical error. Well, I'm not so sure, Louise told her. Maybe you should double-check. But Muriel and Ruth were determined to be there to see Michael graduate. Because of Muriel's concerns about highway driving, they rose at dawn, so they could drive at a leisurely pace and still arrive in plenty of time. The SIU Medical School class of 1982 graduated on June 5, 1982. Michael Swango was absent. Because he failed to graduate, the University of Iowa withdrew its offer of an internship. Some of his classmates, especially Rosenthal, were jubilant, mostly because they were graduating, but also because they felt their campaign to block Swango had at least partly succeeded. After the ceremony, Dr. Murphy, whom Rosenthal had especially admired, followed him off the stage and into the hallway. Rosenthal greeted him, expecting a slap on the back and some congratulations. Instead, Murphy lambasted him for his campaign against Swango. If you'd spend half as much time worrying about your own performance as you do others, Murphy told him, you might be the doctor you think you are. When Louise arrived at the motel that evening for the celebratory graduation dinner, she knew immediately that something had gone wrong. Muriel looked ashen. Ruth was tight-lipped, but seemed to be fighting back tears. Louise sat down, and they all ordered a drink. Then Muriel announced that Mike hadn't graduated with his class, and that she and Ruth hadn't attended the ceremony. Just before leaving the motel, about an hour before the graduation, Michael had told her that because of a computer mix-up, he had inadvertently been dropped from the list of graduates. Whatever emotions she must have felt were held firmly in control. Muriel didn't express any shock or disappointment. Louise found the explanation hard to believe, but Muriel said firmly that if Michael said so, then that was what had happened. They waited, but Michael never showed up for dinner. 
Chapter 3 After his brush with expulsion, Swango was a model medical student. He dutifully repeated the OBGYN rotation, attending all the required surgeries and oral examinations, and he acquitted himself satisfactorily in his other supervised assignments. Dean Richard Moy had taken an additional step that he believed might put others on notice that SIU had experienced problems with Swango's performance. Every graduating medical student receives a dean's letter, which reviews his or her strengths and weaknesses and is used in applications for internships, residencies, and other employment. Though another administrator usually drafted such letters, Dean Moy took a personal interest in Swango's. It was carefully written to call attention to the fact that he had not graduated with his class, that he had failed a rotation and been required to repeat it, and that there had been concern about his professional behavior. Given the school's anxiety about possible legal liability, this was as far as Moy felt the letter could go. He was confident that, at the least, it would cause a teaching hospital to call SIU for more explanation before admitting Swango for further training. Yet on match day, March 16, 1983, Dr. William Hunt, director of the Department of Neurosurgery at Ohio State University in Columbus, offered Swango a residency in neurosurgery after the successful completion of a year's internship in general surgery to begin on July 1st. That year, Ohio State, one of the most prestigious residency programs in the country, had received about 60 applicants for its neurosurgery residence program and had invited 12 for personal interviews, Swango among them. He was the only student finally offered a position. Swango's success seemed even more astounding than his offer from the University of Iowa had been the year before. Michael Swango was graduated from SIU on April 12, 1983. Though there was no ceremony, he received his diploma in the mail, and Muriel spread the good news of his graduation and acceptance at Ohio State to family members. These developments lent credence to Michael's explanation that a computer glitch had postponed his graduation. No one questioned why it would have taken nearly a year to correct such an error. Nor did Michael mention to anyone in Quincy, let alone at Ohio State, that shortly after his graduation from SIU, he was fired by America Ambulance. Already on probation because of his violent outbursts, Swango had responded to an emergency call in Rochester, Illinois, a small town close to Springfield. The patient, gasping for air and in acute pain, was suffering a heart attack. Swango's instructions were to administer any emergency treatment called for and then transport him in the ambulance to the nearest hospital. Instead, he made the patient walk to his own car and told the family to drive him to the hospital themselves. The patient survived, but the family called America Ambulance to complain about Swango. No one could explain his cavalier behavior. It was both medically unsound and a clear violation of the Ambulance Corps' rules. Swango offered no adequate explanation and was fired. But Michael was no doubt indifferent to his dismissal now that he had graduated from SIU. He returned to Quincy and was promptly hired as a paramedic by the Adams County Ambulance Corps. He worked there for just three months, since he had to be in Columbus, Ohio by July 1st to begin his internship.
Anne Ritchie first met the new blonde intern on the ninth floor of Rhodes Hall, one of the largest buildings in the Ohio State Medical Complex. She did a double take. She thought he was handsome, with an athletic build and angular face, a very all-American look. But what struck her most was that he looked remarkably like her cousin's husband in Minnesota. The similarity was so pronounced that she checked the ID tag on his surgical jacket to see if there might be some family relation. That was why she remembered his name, Michael Swango. Attractive, popular, and vivacious, Richie was the daughter of a physician and had always wanted a career in health care. She loved working in the Ohio State hospitals, even though as a casual or supplemental nurse, working two or four shifts a week whenever she was needed, she ranked fairly low. Swango didn't seem the least bit interested in his resemblance to her cousin. But Richie was accustomed to indifference on the part of doctors. At the Ohio State hospitals, which maintained a rigid hierarchy among doctors, nurses, and other staff, nurses didn't speak to attending physicians unless specifically questioned by them. The physicians gave their instructions to residents and interns, who in turn passed them on to the nursing staff. Any questions or statements by the nurses were supposed to be directed either to the interns and residents for transmittal to attending physicians or to their nurse supervisors. Ohio State denies that there is any rule or policy preventing nurses from initiating a conversation with attending physicians, but every nurse I interviewed insisted that such a practice prevailed. With over 50,000 students at the time Swango arrived, Ohio State is virtually a city unto itself. It even has its own police force and governance. The Ohio State University Medical Center is located just a few blocks from the Oval, the grassy center of the sprawling campus. After the Ohio State Buckeye football team, the medical center is the crown jewel of the giant state university. It has 1,123 beds and 4,278 employees, and university officials describe it as the second-largest teaching hospital program in the country, after the University of Iowa's. The hospitals sometimes vie for supremacy in Ohio, with the prestigious Cleveland Clinic, the highly regarded Case Western Reserve University, also in Cleveland, and the University of Cincinnati. But its size and political clout the university trustees are appointed by the governor, and the hospital's board is a who's who of prominent Ohio business and civic leaders, usually ensure Ohio State's preeminence. Graduates of the medical school dominate Ohio's medical establishment and institutions. So Swango joined an elite group of medical school graduates for his first assignment as a surgical intern, which was in the emergency room. Given such competition, it didn't take long for some of his shortcomings to surface. Each doctor in charge of a surgical rotation evaluates the interns at the conclusion of the rotation, and Dr. Ronald Ferguson, the doctor in charge of transplant surgery who oversaw Swango's work from mid-October until mid-November, told Dr. Hunt that he was going to fail Swango, and that he didn't believe he was competent to practice medicine. While the details of Swango's performance have been shrouded in secrecy by Ohio State, the school has said only that nothing of a criminal nature was contained in Swango's evaluations, Ferguson complained specifically about Swango's brusque and indifferent manner with patients, his cursory H&Ps, charges that echo the criticisms of his performance at SIU, 
and a general sense that Swango lacked the temperament and dedication necessary to be a doctor. Swango also alarmed at least one other of his supervising physicians with remarks suggesting a fascination with the Nazis and the Holocaust. This fascination was noted in his student record. Some of the residents who spent more time with Swango than the attending physicians did also complained to doctors on the faculty that Swango was weird. While making rounds, residents often gave interns tasks and then critiqued their performance. Whenever they criticized Swango, as they often did because of his incompetence, Swango would immediately drop to the floor and begin a strenuous set of push-ups. He could do hundreds of them. It was almost as if he was still in the Marines, and this was his self-imposed punishment. Of course, the residents thought his reaction not only peculiar, but highly inappropriate for a doctor making rounds. Despite their admonitions, he persisted. At the time Swango was hired, no one from Ohio State called anyone at SIU. Indeed, no one appears even to have noticed that he should have graduated from SIU a year earlier than he did. But now... Troubled by the negative report from Ferguson and other comments about Swango's odd behavior, Dr. Hunt got on the phone to SIU's Howard Barrows, the associate dean for medical education. Barrows was in charge of student recommendations, including the dean's letters signed by Moy, and had helped draft Swango's. With an edge of annoyance, Hunt asked about Swango. What kind of guy did you send us? Barrow said that Hunt should have seen plenty of warning flags in Swango's dean's letter. Well, Hunt retorted, I don't read dean's letters. Barrows asked him if he'd kept the dean's letter in Swango's file, and Hunt said he'd check. Soon after Hunt called back, he'd found the letter. Oh, my God, Hunt said. You're right. You did tell me. Still, no consideration seems to have been given to terminating Swango's internship. On January 14, 1984, Hunt met with Swango and warned him that he had received a failing evaluation from Dr. Ferguson that might threaten his residency. He reminded Swango that the offer of a residency in neurosurgery was contingent on successful completion of the one-year internship. Swango took the news calmly. He seemed suitably concerned and sincere in his desire to improve. He was sufficiently charming and contrite that Hunt helped him plot strategies for overcoming the negative review and continuing with his residency. Hunt recommended that Swango appeal Ferguson's evaluation to the Residency Review Committee, made up of doctors from the surgery department. Swango took him up on the suggestion, and the committee met later that month to reevaluate him. Ritchie and Swango didn't have much contact after their initial meeting when she had examined his name tag, though she did talk fairly often to his new girlfriend, a fellow nurse named Rita Dumas, who also often worked in Rhodes Hall. The relationship surprised many on the nursing staff, because Dumas hardly seemed a catch for a promising and handsome young intern. She was reasonably attractive, but her personality had caused some of the other nurses to keep their distance. Divorced a few years before, with three young children, she was always complaining about something. She worked the night shift, returning home at seven in the morning, just as the children were awakening. She said she was never able to get enough sleep, which might have accounted for her often surly mood. But she seemed transformed by the romance with Swango. 
Though she still kept mostly to herself, she acquired a new glow of confidence, and her attitude toward life seemed to improve. A few of the other nurses noted the changes with a touch of envy. Dumas had been going through a difficult period. Swango had been tender and supportive. He was wonderful with her children, and they loved it when he performed feats of juggling for them. She later said, I do not think that I would have survived had Swango not been there for me. On February 6th, Anne Ritchie reported to Rhodes Hall for the morning shift and was assigned to a neurosurgery patient in room 968 named Ruth Barrick. Barrick was a pleasant elderly woman who had been admitted to the hospital on January 17th. She had fallen and hit her head at home ten days earlier and suffered a cerebral hematoma. Though her condition was serious, it had never been considered life-threatening until she suffered respiratory arrest and nearly died on January 31st, just after Swango's appeal of his negative evaluation was rejected. No one told Ritchie what had happened. But on January 31st, another nurse, Deborah Kennedy, had given Barrick her breakfast and assessed her condition. The patient seemed to be doing well. She was sitting up in bed, talking, and responding to directions. At about 9.45 a.m., Dr. Swango had come into Barrick's room and told Kennedy... I'm going to check on her. Kennedy thought this was peculiar, since doctors rounded at 6.30 a.m. and rarely returned unless there was a specific problem. In such cases, it was the attending physician, not an intern by himself, who would call on the patient. But Kennedy gave the matter little thought. She left Swango alone in the room with Barrick. About 20 minutes later, Kennedy returned to check on Barrick. Swango was gone, Barrick was now reclining and seemed to be asleep. But when she drew close to the bedside, Kennedy was alarmed. Barrick was barely breathing. Her skin was taking on a bluish cast, a sign of imminent death from respiratory failure. Kennedy immediately called a code over the intercom, and doctors came rushing to the room. Swango was the first to respond, but others too began working to resuscitate her. After 45 minutes, Barrick's vital signs seemed to stabilize, and she was transferred to intensive care. There she recovered without any evident lingering effects and returned to her room. At about 8 a.m. on February 6th, Ritchie gave Barrick a bath. The patient was alert, talking, cheerful, and seemed to be recovering. But Ritchie noticed that the central venous pressure, CVP, was low in the central line, an intravenous tube supplying medication to the major blood vessels. She called to ask that a doctor check the line, and then left the room to check other patients. A few minutes later, she saw Swango enter Barrack's room, remembered him as the new doctor who looked like her cousin, and felt relieved that an M.D. had responded to her call. Richie might have given the matter no further thought, but some time passed, and she didn't see Swango emerge which made her think that there might be a problem with the central line. This wasn't unusual, because the central line, connected as it is to the major blood vessels, often requires some delicate work if a blockage occurs, and there is a particular risk of getting air into the tube, which can be fatal. So Richie went back into Barrack's room to see if Swango needed help. Swango had drawn the curtains entirely around Barrack's bed which meant that neither Barrack's roommate nor anyone passing the room's open door could see what was happening. Richie found this odd. 
She stuck her head through the curtains. Swango was hovering over Barrack's chest area and seemed startled. Do you need any help? she asked cheerfully. No, Swango replied. Richie left. Ten minutes later, concerned that Swango still hadn't finished, Richie entered the room, saw the closed curtains, and again asked if Swango needed any help. He said he didn't. Three minutes later, Richie returned, opened the curtain, and looked in. This time she saw that Swango was using two or three syringes. One was stuck directly into the central line. Another was resting on Swango's shoulder, as if he was waiting to insert it whenever the other syringe had emptied. Had Swango simply been using the syringes to clear the line, there should have been blood in them. But there was no blood. Swango again said he needed no assistance, and Richie left the room. Just a few minutes later, Richie saw Swango finally leave. Good, she thought to herself. That's finally over. Whatever was wrong with Barrack's line had evidently been corrected. Almost immediately, no more than ten seconds had elapsed, she went back into the room to check Barrack's dressing where the central line entered the body. Richie was stunned. Barrack had turned blue. She gave one terrifying shudder and gasp, then stopped breathing. Richie screamed, Code blue! Code blue! then began mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, desperately trying to get breath into Barrack's lungs. She looked up and saw Dr. Swango coolly watching her from the back of the room, doing nothing to assist her or the patient. That is so disgusting, Swango said of her efforts at mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, his voice tinged with contempt. Still in shock, Richie stared at him in disbelief. You jerk! she shouted, before returning frantically to the patient. Other nurses and doctors rushed in and began chest compressions, but to no avail. Ruth Barrick was dead. The last entry in Barrick's Physician Progress Notes was made by Swango and dated February 6th at 11 a.m. P.T., patient, suffered apparent respiratory arrest witnessed by R.N. No pulse present. Code Blue called at 10.25 hours. P.T. did not respond to resuscitative measures. Pronounced dead at 10.49. Dr. Joseph Goodman and family notified per Dr. Arlo Brakel. Swango. The death certificate cited the cause of death as A. Cardiopulmonary arrest due to B. Cerebrovascular accident. A stroke in lay terms. Richie was astounded and appalled when Swango insisted he wanted personally to convey the news of Barrack's death to her family members. She later saw him leading relatives into a private room, and she could hardly believe what she had witnessed. She was almost certain that something Swango had done had killed Barrack. Still, it never crossed her mind that he might have killed her deliberately. She assumed that he had accidentally allowed an air pocket to enter the central line, causing a fatal embolism in the bloodstream. Such accidents did sometimes happen, which was one of the reasons only doctors were allowed to adjust central lines. But why hadn't Swango acknowledged the error? Why had he acted as he did? And what was he doing with those syringes? These troubling questions were still swirling in Richie's mind that afternoon when she responded to an urgent call in another room. 
The head nurse, Amy Moore, was with a patient who was having serious trouble breathing. Richie was alarmed to see that Swango was also in the room. With the patient gasping for breath, he ordered Richie to fetch a heart monitor. Moore seemed incredulous. Using a heart monitor would take valuable time. We don't need a heart monitor to check her lungs, she exclaimed. It was rare for a nurse to defy a doctor, but the patient's condition plainly suggested blood clots in the lungs. She needed to be rushed to another floor for testing. Swango was insistent. She has to have a heart monitor. No, she doesn't, Richie interjected, fearing that the patient would die while they delayed dealing with an obvious condition. But Swango was adamant. Moore said she could handle the situation and told the visibly upset Richie she could leave. Moore got the patient to the other floor in time to save her life. After her shift ended that day, Richie was driving home on Route 315 to the northwest suburbs where she lived. She couldn't get the day's disturbing events out of her mind. Barrack's death, Swango's unfeeling reaction to it, and his jeopardizing another patient made her consider the possibility that his actions had been deliberate. Her heart started racing, her head felt light, and she feared she would faint. She pulled over to the side of the busy highway to collect herself, but she still felt waves of anxiety. As soon as she could, she got off the highway and drove to her sister's house, where she broke down in tears. She told her sister about Ruth Barrick, and then about the other patient. Her sister called their father, the doctor, who said he'd check on Anne as soon as he could. Meanwhile, she did deep breathing exercises in an effort to stem the anxiety and calm herself. Surely she was wrong about Swango. Barrick's death was an accident. Eventually, her pulse returned to normal. She regained her strength, and she was able to drive home. The next day, in line with the hospital protocol that any irregular incidents should be reported to one's immediate superior, Ritchie told Amy Moore her suspicions that Swango had caused Barrick's death. She also talked with several other nurses about what had happened. Given hospital practice, she didn't dare say anything to any doctors. In any event, she was afraid to mention the real cause of her anxiety attack, her suspicion that Swango's actions had been premeditated and deliberate. Deliberate. That is my word. The Catherine Massey Book Club. Context of white supremacy. Deliberate. Oh, such an important word in the system of white supremacy. All right. The number. 605-313-5164. The code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate i'll give out the number again i'm just sharing this now so i don't forget <clears throat> we read james lowen's sundown town in the book club maybe five years back i think 2017 six years back uh reluctantly in my top 10 but I mention it so frequently such great info Iowa pops up in there as does Maine uh, this is chapter or just ordinances are real written 
or not. He writes, talks about New England, and then he goes into Iowa specifically, since that was where he was going to go for his residency, Michael Swango, University of Iowa, Iowa City. Sure enough, the 1980 census shows Ashby with 2,000, this is Massachusetts, 311 people, including no African Americans. New Market in southwestern Iowa repassed its sundown ordinance even later in the 1980s. African American John Bakersville, oh, I want to skip that part just to get back to, because he goes into Missouri. Uh, New Market's sundown ordinance went right back into effect. The following night, 20 years after the 1964 Civil Rights Act made it illegal for a bar owner to keep an African-American out of his or her tavern, the city officials of New Market, Iowa, thought they had the power to keep them out of an entire town, at least after dark. Apparently, they still do, for the 2000 census showed no African-Americans in New Market and none in Gravity, Bedford, Villisca, indeed neither Taylor County nor adjoining Adams County had a single black household. Iowa pops up in here a lot, but there are many of the places where Michael Swango is hanging out at, just like with Jeffrey Dahmer and the Columbine kids. These are basically racially restricted regions. You might have one Isaiah show, but it's not going to be many. Number again, 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. So you get out our one more sundown town component, Rochester, Illinois, and particularly this is a lot of the focus of that book, James Lowen's, uh, that these areas where they restrict Negroes from residing and or non-white people in mass, although it's mostly black people, they got these restrictions about these are in the north, so-called, mostly, not down south, Georgia, Alabama, and such. Of course, they have racism, white supremacy there, but it's just these <clears throat> places are going to be further north. We don't want the Negroes migrating, trying to think they're going to run from racism and run up here. No way. Uh, but for Rochester, Illinois, uh, possibly sundown town, uh, he write this is on James Owen's website probably still not at this point although there are still very few black people and they have the data so how few Rochester Illinois as of 2000 the total population this is a very tiny place types of places Mr. Fuller talks about those little itty bitty white towns that we so a total population of 2,893 people eight Negras yikes and Michael Swango probably trying to kill them uh, let's see <clears throat> uh, number again 605-313-5164 the code 564-943 pound the email until justice 
at gmail.com. Uh, I'll get one email and then we'll get to folks on the line and such. There are lots of documentaries uh, and footage about this book. Uh, ABC 2020 did a segment. HBO was going to do a film. I don't know if they've released it or not yet, but this was uh, they were talking about this in many reports uh, there. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Uh, Michael Swango is easily one of the most celebrated white killers, probably be right up there with Lucy Letby because they already have lots of content on her. It'll be even more by the time Netflix and Hulu and everybody else gets done with it. Uh, okay. I see email number one. Uh, so, and last week, right. I asked, why do people think we're only second audio segment just got started, barely scratched chapter three. Why do we think James Stewart kicks this book off literally first paragraph with a white man putting a needle in the rectum of a black male in Zimbabwe? Why is that the jump off for this book? As folks that think about that as we proceed. Uh, so email number one. Uh, regarding your question, I am not all sure what the answer is, but I'll give it a try. Given the, that the author is a suspected racist, I decided to start with the premise that his goal was to reinforce white supremacy. Even though Swango was able to dupe some white people, there were many white people who were suspicious of him, read this week. On the other hand, he writes that none of the Africans held such suspicion and in fact sort of deified him. Thus, even though the colonizers are no longer in power, the Africans are easily fooled and not capable of analysis. Kind of a long answer. Not sure if it makes any sense at all. All of that is there. I mean, that needle in the and he lifts up his shirt. They even have, I think, that black male, Zimbabwean, I think he's on one of those documentaries. They go and talk to him and he talks about not being suspicious and this is a great white man. Same thing they said about Jeffrey. I mean, you get a cool white man. He didn't come to call us names and everything. Man, and he's a doctor. My God, we all need a doctor. Mm. Uh, but yeah, and, and that allows for talking about all of the, the horrible conditions and they're homophobic, right? He gets in all that really quick. So, I mean, hmm, hmm. Ignorant black people and they're homophobes. Get your dig in on Robert Mugabe. Meh. And then we get into all this white malfeasance, medical malfeasance, no less. Chapter 2. Page 37. Muriel discovered a box of books and papers that had belonged to her husband. Scrapbook of articles and photographs of car crashes, disasters, other incidents of violent death. Knowing he would be interested, Muriel later gave the scrapbook to Mike. Finally bonding with Dad over their mutual fascination with death. How macabre seems akin to keeping souvenirs from lynchings. Yep, seems like you could, they could have just sat around and talked about war and Vietnam and things that he saw over there in the war and all that. Meh. Number two, if I'm ever accused of murder, he replied, the scrapbooks will prove I'm not mentally competent. This will be my defense. No one took this seriously. He was studying for his future crimes early in life. If there is planning, there is no mental illness. Learn that with Jeffrey Dahmer. Three, Swango secured a glowing letter of recommendation from Dr. Wakaser. 
the neurosurgeon who had been his mentor, which he sent to about 10 teaching hospitals. These letters are critical and carry a lot of weight in resident applications. Non-whites, particularly black males, are likely not supported to the same degree. Say that about 50 times. Having a mentor like Dr. Wakasser, I suspect, is also pretty rare for the few black males who even get into med school say that about 50 times as well that's one of those uh, fields where you really need those mentors to look out for you and say a kind word hook you up with info four though pleased even Wakaser was surprised when Swango told him that he had been accepted for an especially prestigious internship in neurosurgery at the University of Iowa's hospital and clinics in Iowa City I bet when he went to that interview and the other suspected racists saw his blonde hair blue eyes and military bearing they said we have our man mm -hmm. so it keeps coming up right how many books in a row is that where it keeps it blonde blue eyed handsome wholesome five uh, OBGYN mm. pause for J. Marion Sims Father of gynecology? Pause for Robert Haddon. If you don't know who that is, shame on you. OBGYN rotation. He didn't show up. She also heard that he had been restricted in his activities at the ambulance corps. He'd been banned from any direct patient contact, though she wasn't told why. When Swango learned that he was going to fail OBGYN and wouldn't graduate, he hired a lawyer. Administrators worried he would sue the school. How does that work? No patient contact? What does he do? Wash and wax the ambulance? We've learned a lot about the tactic of lawyering up from the recent book club selections. Where did he get the money for a lawyer? Maybe his mom pitched in? She's doing well, got pension from vet pops who's passed away. Maybe she loaned him a few nickels. Maybe they got student aid too. I know a lot of times if you're a college student, they'll have uh, either free or reduced uh, charge legal aid for college students frequently, especially if you're white. Six. Gone to the patient files to retrieve Swango's report on the cesarean delivery patient. It had vanished. Reminds one of the Columbine and local enforcement officials. Evidence just seems to mysteriously turn up missing. Indeed. Indeed. And this is like sensitive information, right? Like this is not somebody came and swiped the stapler off the desk. Like this should be in a filing cabinet in a locked room, maybe even locked filing cabinet or something or computer with a password. Like how does it just Halloween spooks and ghosts get out of here. Seven. He was virtually the sole supporter of his mother and two brothers. It is that he is such a good liar or is he always given the benefit of the doubt because he is white that latter is so important white people a huge component it's just like with Sue Klebold a huge aspect of why white people master deceivers other white people support their lies and or they don't call them out like we just got a healthy dose of that with Sue Klebold right all those glowing reviews same with uh, my man Swango 
saying that she's great and awesome and oh I'm so I admire her so and she's been so forthright and all the rest of this hogwash but white people support other white people's lies they don't call them out that makes them so effective uh, might be part of the white code to not call out other white people lying eight any decision to dismiss a student required unanimity eight members voted to expel Swango one abstained and one Dr. Murphy voted to give him another chance consult several psychiatrists who advised them that if Swango really suffered from a significant character disorder at some testimony as some testimony suggested or was a habitual liar as most committee members had concluded he would not be able to conceal these traits if he was placed under close scrutiny how does one abstain and for what reason maybe they were homies or I don't know he had some dog in the fight as they say like you know I don't even nah, sit this one <laughs> well it seems that double O did fool them I doubt if Gus T was in medical school and had the same track record he would have survived the increase please please I couldn't have even got a lawyer to come and defend me like come I mean, he had students out picketing for him and everything like come on come on come on chapter three Swingo's fascination with Nazis and the Holocaust, buddy, buddy, have we heard this three, four, five, twenty times? Two, Barrows asked him if he'd kept the dean's letter in Swingo's file, and Hunt said he checked. Soon after, Hunt called back. He found the letter. Oh my God! Hunt said, "You're right. You did tell me." Once again, just like Iowa, they saw a tall, handsome blonde man during the interview and he just assumed everything was good. Hunt's name remains known in neurosurgery due to his Hunt-Hess classification for cerebral aneurysms. Well-known non-white people who have been treated for cerebral aneurysms Quincy Jones. Wow. Oh, that's Seattle's own. Sharon Epperson, finance journalist for CNBC. That one staggered me for many reasons. Um, where they give you all the details, you know, all the things that should stand out. You know, it took him this extra time to graduate and they're talking about his professionalism and he failed a course and <laughs> do it over again. And, and you easily, you, these are your homies. You easily could have picked up the phone and called the folks at Southern Illinois. Like what's up with this swango dude? Like what's let's we'll come and golf. We'll do 18 holes and, yeah, to, what, what in the world? Should we, what do you think, pass, yay? Because these are competitive slots, right? They said they got t uh, 12 slots, like 60 applicants. Like, hey, we got other competitive folks who we don't have to worry that they're going to be slipping us rat poison, we hope. And they passed. You know, they didn't have to go back and repeat a course and all the rest of it. You don't even check? What does it mean to be white we heard some of that with Columbine too where people are not even double checking like what really diversion program huh, really early termination and all that like wow let's see number 
three. Dr. Swango had come into Barrick's room and told Kennedy, I'm going to check on her. Kennedy thought this was peculiar since doctors rounded at 6.30 a.m. and rarely return unless there was a specific problem that was what was he doing with those syringes. Surprised to see Swango there, Rees Freeman, the chief resident in neurosurgery, and Arlo Brakel, another resident, were among the first to arrive along with several nurses. What was he doing here? He had a goofy look on his face. It's an old cliche like kids with his finger in the cookie jar. This behavior should have been enough for the chief resident to go immediately to the chairman and say something. Apparently they did not. Now, I do grasp, I do think since a number of folks have said they're nicknaming him Doc, uh, 00 Swango and all the rest, I do think we're talking about a white man said for years I think our brains just don't work the same way as white people and I've explained a little further and just saying I don't think non-white people I just don't think we sit around thinking about how to harm people all day long all the time all areas of people activity doesn't matter what it is we got to get in some harm to non-white people I don't think it's just hard for us to think that way. We don't think that way. So it's difficult for us to think that, wow, you got not just one person, but a whole group of people. That's how they think. That's how they behave. Evidence shows this worldwide. Same type of a thing. It seems it would be difficult to think like, dang, is he going around killing people? <laughs> like with us, like what? No, that, that, nah, yeah, maybe the air bubble that probably yeah that's probably what it is he's still messed up I still think he's goofy and all the rest of it and what is he doing saying that but I think it would be kind of hard at least to immediately come to the conclusion like hey I think he's killing people I could be wrong on that if you think hey the logic one and one is two this should have been easy and quick and it would have been if this had been yours truly rental James even if it had been the great Francis Cress Welsing MD that's why I said last week do you think I, it's hard for me to, double O Welsing we got this nigger woman here that we didn't want to begin with and then people like I, I don't know so I will concede that but I do think for most people it would be kind of difficult to think yeah Mike is killing folks that's what it is I'm gonna go rat him out right now but I will we'll ponder as we continue rolling along I'll pause there because as far as we got uh, we'll have to pick up second section of the text number again 605-313-5164 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you have commentary, let's see. Uh, first few folks with a hand up. Uh, if you have thoughts, first portion of the reading line should be open. Yeah, uh, uh, victim from, you can go ahead. I get it. Oh, thank you. Thank you, victim from New Jersey. Um, good evening, guys. This is Fresh Princess. I'm a little under the weather. Um, general observation is that Michael Swango probably killed way more people than they give him credit for. And the book kind of answered my question when I thought that because they mentioned no contact with 
patient, even though he was supposed to be like an EMT or something like that. So how is that possible? I'm quite sure he was telling a lot of people on the way to the hospital, over-medicating them or, you know, shooting them up with something, and they have a heart attack on the way, uh, even though they could have been, like, stabilized or something. I'm quite sure he had a number of those, but they could never, quote, unquote, you know, um, catch him, but they suspected him. I think that he had way more interest in that job than practicing medicine because it was harder to kill patients on the floor than it was to kill patients in the ambulance. And I want to say when you murder people and rob stuff, like you have thrill-seeking behavior and you might get like an adrenaline rush from that. So probably when he was killing people, he got a little high and he focused his energies where he could get his fix of adrenaline, and that was in the EMT, working as a medic. Uh, I found it very odd that he was able to get a neurosurgery match, even though he had all of these other behavioral issues and observations about him. Um, The one doctor seems to be really rooting for him, and it's odd despite all of his colleagues saying, like, no, this guy isn't it. I highly suspect that the book is starting off in Africa because he went to a place where he would be the least likely suspect. He would have um, the maximum amount of vulnerable victims, well, vulnerable potential victims, and he was probably the least likely, he was probably not going to get caught in his mind because Africans allegedly are less intelligent and he was the great white hope doctor that came over there to help them. So those are my observations. Thank you for allowing me to speak. Hmm. Get lots of rest, fresh princess. I was just not feeling well myself. Um, Lots of fluids, lots of rest. Um, I was going to say, tell your mom I said hi, but now she's under the weather and all. Um, take good care of health. Can't do uh, nothing more valuable than your health and well-being. Um, did you know about this dude? This is kind of close to your field. Did you know about old Agent 00 Swango? I didn't know about him. Believe it or not, I did not know about him. But um, in my field of research, I know about a whole bunch of doctors who... Um, have conducted research without like IRB approval or whatever because every year um, a list comes out of bad actors, people who didn't have permission to do research that did research from the FDA's website. I have to dig, no, dig to find like the link, but that's my daily wit to see actually what they did and why they did it. Hmm. Fascinating. Rule breakers. That's enough. Well, yeah, long conversation, but some of that will, some of that will come up uh, in the text as we proceed. Me thanks. Still learning. I didn't know about this dude until a few months ago either. Still learning. Uh, our caller in New Jersey. Much obliged for your patience. Oh, I needed him. Caller in New Jersey. Thanks for your patience. Victim in New Jersey. Hey, Gus. Sorry for the noise in the background. Um. 
um, first thing that came to mind from last week's and this week's book read is White Fathers. Um, White Fathers is, uh, you know, just a reoccurring theme uh, in a lot of, you know, from um, um, from uh, Eric Klebo, uh, the, the Columbine um, killings, and to um, even uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, you know, White Fathers. Um, I think that to start off in Africa, I think it has, you know, two effects, but I'll just speak on a black effect, you know what I'm saying, self-esteem, because it reinforces um, white, black inferiority, you know what I mean, as um, this, this doctor, this killer, was able to be an army of one, even just an army of one white man can just go into an African nation and just, you know, just cause, you know, devastation and havoc. Uh, so it has an effect of reinforcing uh, that black people in the system are not protected. And, you know, so I think it has that effect. Um, I think that this doctor is not an anomaly. Uh, I just remember reading this book, I just remember as a young child, they were videos that surfaced. And I don't know if the audience, if they remember these videos, they used to be videos called Faces of Death. And you used to, and these was, this was during the time of um, VCR. And, you know, people would just look at minutes to hours of just ways people die. So I think in a system of white supremacy, um, his behavior and his actions is not an anomaly. Um, the doctor that was spoke, speaking up for him, the first thing I thought about is he has a bright future. Um, that's a reoccurring thing, even though um, I'm, I'm, I, don't, I don't think it was said, but that is always the go-to when it comes to white males, white people in general. You know, he has a bright future. You know, we, we have to protect um, white people's future, you know, for a, 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 just, just kind of like a, a, a kind of uh, affirmative action, you know, uh, for white people, especially white males. Um, I agree that I think that he killed way more people than than that's reported. And um, also, it's a shame. I never heard of this guy till uh, this book read. So I never knew that there were was a medical serial killer. Um, you know, so that's you know that's that's real interesting. I'm wondering, you know, why. Um, he's not celebrated, you know, just like Jeffrey, your Jeffrey Dahmer's or your, uh, 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 Manson's and, you know, I'm, I'm just, so I'm, I'm really, I'm really interested on why this isn't really, you know, highlighted maybe, maybe because majority, um, I'm assuming majority of his victims, um, were white. I mean, that, that could be. A reason I'm not, you know, I'm not sure, um, but um, yeah, this this is this is this is I think this is just white culture, 
just a fascination with death, destruction. Um, even when the last caller talked about the adrenaline rush, the adrenaline rush that you get when you watch football and you see a violent hit and if, you know, the crowd roars. I think that in this society, in the system of white supremacy, death has that same, gives, gives uh, white supremacists the same adrenaline rush. So, yeah, that's, that's just my observation so far. Much obliged victim in New Jersey. Uh, two folks, myself included, three of us, did not know about this guy until pretty recently. Um, I'd say we kind of typical of the system of white supremacy. I think many white people, they were aware of Michael Swango. Like this book did pretty well uh, by James B. Stewart, and it was published almost 25 years ago. Um, there are lots of documentaries and you know such he was on unsolved mysteries he was on america's most wanted he was on 2020 he was on the justice files uh oxygen did a documentary on him the flipping i think it's the smithsonian's website they have a documentary they have us it's on poisons it's on the smithsonian has a whole segment professionally done on michael swango they talk about poisons and the history of poisons and undetectable poisons and they all of this is weaved around Michael Swango um, it's it is mind-blowing um, I don't I think he is celebrated like there's so many videos on this you could just sit around I, I think I tweeted that you could easily binge watch Michael Swango footage for a whole weekend I mean Friday to Monday morning you could binge watch so I don't know, uh, but that's two folks who answered our question about uh, why this book started off in Zimbabwe. Uh, the inferiority, I think that makes a lot of sense too. I too, I thought that was a great point from Fresh Princess, even under the weather, about uh, him having the no contact order as a uh, working with the ambulance service. And said, "How? What is that? So what do you do? Why would they even do that? Like, hmm, he probably had been killing some patients there." And they couldn't figure it out or whatever. I don't know why that wouldn't just be a, hey, let's fire him and get somebody else. <laughs> like, this is not even worth the trouble. Like, people are dying and such. We think you might have killed him. Like, why not just fire him? <laughs> Fuller does say, white people don't get fired. They get transferred. Jesus Christ this what's an illustration <laughs> like even at the you're incompetent and all that and your peers think we should expect eh, eh, you'll do great at Ohio State here's a letter of records <laughs> let somebody else let them deal with it ah, ah. yeah we told you we told you it's all right there in the letter see you didn't read it see Woo, man uh, learn a little bit about everything uh, oh 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 he said medical serial killer. We Nairobi Thompson did start us, start us off at the beginning of 2023. She said, Harold Shipman, you know, who Harold Shipman is Now that's on the other side of the world. But I mean, whew. certainly we now know who Lucy Letby is. So at minimum, by the time we get done with this book, all of us will know three white 
medical serial killers pretty well actually at least three they're probably more white culture faces of death who thought that was going to come up today let's see uh other folks who dialed in with a hand up line should be open proceed can i be heard mama c woke baby yes ma'am hello everyone hello guys um thanks for the opportunity to speak yes um that was in my notes so so much of this book talks about how um there is there is protocol for the hospital or for the school or uh between the nurses and the doctors and what it seems like is the people who are working alongside swango or swango um they information that they share with um up the chain of command However, somebody in the chain stops the information to getting to the top where, you know, the punishment or accountability uh, would, would um, be, be enacted against Dr. Swingo. And so that happened when he was in high school and then he ended up graduating um, when he was in, or I'm sorry, when he was in college and then he ends up graduating and then going and getting um um, at OSU. Um, do, 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 do. Let's see. Hold on just a second. Um, do, do, do. Yes, he got transferred so many times. So he got fired from one ambulance uh, employer and then was immediately hired. And even though people make notes in his files, um, that information is never shared between employers or it's never shared between the schools. Somebody will make notes in his school file, but it's not sent over. And I guess people just assume like, oh, people will do the research and people will investigate this guy and then they'll make the decision whether or not to hire him or whether or not to accept him into their program or into this school. And people just don't. Uh, with the, I think it was, Nurse, there were so many red flags. She kept, um, she kept getting the intuition like something was wrong with this patient. Uh, Dr. Swango was in there. She she saw that the curtain was pulled back all the way around so nobody could see, and her roommate, uh, the patient's roommate, wouldn't be able to see. And she kept going back into the room, kept going back into the room, and she knew something was wrong. Uh, she kept asking him if he needed assistance. He said no. He had like three syringes in the room, one on his shoulder, one in the in the line. And she she kept second guessing herself like something was wrong. And then the patient ends up dying. Uh, the last thing I want to share was there was one patient um, where Dr. Swango, his appeal got rejected and uh, a patient almost died where they had to call code blue. And a common pattern is whenever he gets um, in trouble or uh, held to account, uh, Dr. Swango will uh, create chaos and terrorize patients or terrorize the staff members. Because when these code blue um, situations happen, it's very stressful on the staff because they want to they want to save the patient. And so probably a lot of staff members are all riled up and have PTSD because they're constantly having to 
uh, save the patient and question themselves, like, is it Dr. Swango? Is it not Dr. Swango? Um, and with that, I will end my share. Much obliged, Mama C. Woke Baby gave us a cameo as well. If uh, Before you go back to mothering, do you think, you know about this fellow before we started reading, do you think Swango is celebrated by white people? Did you get the impression he's kind of well-known or no? No, I, I'm not familiar with anybody who knows of this doctor at all prior to, you know, reading the book. Hmm, okay. Maybe he's not that well celebrated. We'll have to We'll ponder on that as we go. Maybe as we're reading, folks can ask, you know, people that you're around or such, like, have you heard of this dude, Michael Swango? And just see, like, oh, yeah, I saw that Unsolved Mysteries, or see what they say. Anywho, uh, let's see. Uh, nap some. Look for other folks. If other folks, star six one. if you have commentary before we get to audio segment two, get to my notes as well, and then we'll get our other emails, too. Uh, some of my notes quickly... Uh, again, I think that is white culture. We've heard some of that. Folks have talked about that. Folks even speculated uh, saying that uh, Dylan Klebold and even uh, maybe even Wayne Harris, that they were not very, not Dylan Klebold, uh, Tom Klebold and Wayne Harris, that they were not very interested in parenting and such. That's just, you know, nah. uh, maybe just based on what we've read. Uh, and then Virgil, hey, man. I would much rather be back over in Vietnam, man. I got my little uh, <laughs> non-white female I'm taking advantage of sexually sooner and all this. Gotta be here with you all. Lame Mike. <sighs> uh, let's see. Sobriety would be best. So he's uh, talking about Virgil was increasingly infirm from cirrhosis of the liver. Um, no need for us to be consuming the narcotics at all. Let's see. We already talked about the glowing letter of recommendation, even after we've had all these suspicions and questions. Robert Hayden is also a name we should know. Now, he didn't kill anyone, but this is like a serial medical rapist, and there are lots of them. This is like a right now case, right? Basically, at the same time that we started this book uh, and at Columbia University, which is J uh, James B. Stewart, his alma mater. Uh, that's a right now case as well. Uh, let's see. This where O'Connor thinks that Michael Swango has been fabricating or just wholesale copied somebody else's report that is so rampant amongst white students. That's why they have all the plagiarism and they got to get AI to detect plagiarism and the fake resumes and all the. I mean, oh, it just abounds, man. And even with all of that. And that's been white culture for years. You still have all of this. What? Check the Dean's letter. Oh, no, I don't read the Dean's letter. What do you mean it was all? Oh, no, I didn't read that. <laughs> Call the Reddit. Tall, blue-eyed, blonde, white. Man. <sighs> we'll read the resume later. Let's see. It said, while the details were confidential, word spread that Swango had failed his OBGYN rotation was going to be brought before the student progress committee uh, I don't know if this is supposed to be one that is confidential in the rumor mill and all of that um, all of this rallying to his defense from professors 
students, people are crying out the hallway like, man, what does it mean to be white, man? I mean, it's difficult for me to think of many circumstances where I would have this sort of support. Even I'm thinking from like my family members who are there crying and, oh my goodness, Gussie is just the best at like, I don't know. It's like, are you serious? It, it says Dr. Murphy Swango's professor of pathology and toxicology became so worked up in a conversation with a dean over the injustice of Swango's plight that he burst into tears. I mean, what's so impressive about this dude that you got to weep for man? And even he continued, he said, uh, well, that's later. He talks about first the missing papers, which you heard before, Columbine, all that's mentioned. Uh, they come in and they dump all of the incorrect behaviors that he's been doing, and he gets to be so charming. He gets to lie again, that he's got to support his family, and dad died, and all that. Put old Virgil in as part of the lie. Um, I thought it was for the timestamp of right now, October 26, with everything happening in Maine right now, and you just had a white dude shot up the bowling alley. They said Muriel had a well-paying job as a business manager at Casino Lanes Bowling Alley and received a pension as the widow of a military and foreign service officer. That was not Casino Lanes and certainly not out in this is Ohio where they are, or Illinois at this point. But I mean, dang, even I was even thinking, dang, that's Columbine too, right? We just read that. Yeah. They were not bowling the day of the shooting, but still, uh, let's see the. <clears throat> doesn't even tell his uh, family members that he's had all, he could at least made up a good lie for all of that right like he at least told them like oh I gotta do this course over and blah 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 it's just gonna be postponed coming out this time like nah nah <laughs> whatever uh, let's see for chapter three just again, like med school is supposed to be so competitive and we have a dearth of black doctors, particularly black male doctors. And this dude gets accepted for and not just into med school, but like the prestigious neurosurgery, neurosurgery residence program. That's where he gets accepted. Like, wow. And same thing we heard last time. Even some of his professors like, wow, really? Got accepted? Hmm. thought you were kind of shiftless. Like, OK, uh, let's see. Emphasis on the blondness. and Richie first met the new blonde intern on the night floor. and whew, She thought he was handsome, athletic build, angular face, all American look. I don't know what that is. Anybody, anybody in the cows listening audience, has anyone ever described you as having that all American look? You could put that up there with wholesome. What does that mean? It seems like it's got to be connected to being blonde, classified as white, blue eyes. Does anybody see Al Sharpton say that is the all American look? What about Simone Biles? People look at her and say all American look. Let's see. They said Ohio State Hospitals, which maintained a rigid hierarchy. That is the system of white supremacy and Negro at the bottom, but even amongst individuals classified as white, 
there is a hierarchy. I say just simple terms when Mr. Fuller says that some racists are more powerful than others. That is hierarchy. Some white people, they have more power. I think we see that every day, our jobs all the time. That's how the system of white supremacy is maintained. Uh, and, and same page, they say that the hospitals in the state of Ohio sometimes vie for supremacy with the prestigious Cleveland Clinic, the highly regarded Case Western Reserve University, also in Cleveland and the University of Cincinnati. They can't vie to be as helpful, as positive as possible and have constructive relationships. We don't know. We vie for supremacy. That also very characteristic of white culture. Everything is a It's not about cooperation. This is a competition. We got to be supreme. Let's see. The Nazi fascination. We've heard that many times. I thought it's important as well. Like white people cannot be fired. There was no consideration given to terminating Swango's internship. As was stated, if that had been Gus T, I would have been given a cardboard box beat it they would have been concerned is this nigger gonna sue us we don't care if he does get out of here beat it bub you and al sharpton beat it um let's see swango hooks up with this chick who had been divorced and had children i was thinking wow is he gonna force the children too lord uh says she was in a surly mood but he improved and got her all feeling great and good about herself was great with the children i have heard that before uh with these white serial killers where they can have a family life and sometimes even have children and sometimes in fact their devotion to their family life even causes them to pause from the killing for a time period I have heard that before that was uh, BTK I believe and a few others that were doing this for a long period of time Uh, let's see the deliberate that's another one I'm looking to see how frequently that's that term is used and how long it takes people to get to that conclusion that that's what this is. This guy is deliberately killing patients. We've already got two section ended another deliberate today. But that I think is important because that's a word that should be highlighted with racism. This is an accident or ignorance. This is white deliberate dedication to dominating individuals they say are not white uh, let's see. And I thought great point Mama C gave us about uh, there seems like there's an aspect of retaliation in all of this. Like when he is in trouble and they're, you know, really suspiciously scrutinizing his work. That's when it's up. Payback time. I'm going to get you. Bang. Go out and kill a few of these patients and all that. And like she said, like that probably would be PTSD going in here and patients are done we don't know why did I do something did he do something and we missed it like what is going on you got to go tell the family and all the rest I suspect that that probably would be a stressful experience for people like yeah that is going to be a form of my get back at you all get me in trouble mess up what I'm trying to do like dang uh, incidentally I also checked Rhodes Hall uh, at Ohio State I was thinking Cecil Rhodes, Africa, right? Because we got that connection, white supremacy and colonialism. But it's not for Cecil Rhodes. Uh, it's for the former uh, former governor uh, of Ohio, James A. Rhodes, 
uh, and you can check for yourself if you have time or interest. The Huff Riots, H-O-U-G-H, Huff Riots uh, in Ohio, 1966, July 1966, where Governor Huff, or excuse me, uh, Governor Rhodes called in the National Guard for black people uh, who were upset about racism, white supremacy in the Huff neighborhood of Cleveland. Uh, but yeah, that's who Rhodes Hall is named for, not Cecil Rhodes. We will pivot to audio segment number two. James B. Stewart, Blind Eye. If you have thoughts you did not get to share, jot them down, make a note. We should have ample time to share. Catherine Massey Book Club, Context of White Supremacy, audio segment dose. That same evening, February 7th, Swango and several other doctors made their evening rounds, stopping to see Raina Cooper, a 69-year-old widow who had had an operation that morning for a lower back problem, and Iwonia Otz, age 59, who was scheduled for but had not yet received treatment for a brain tumor. For 12 days, the two had shared room 900 in Rhodes Hall. Over that time, they had become friendly. Cooper, a former seamstress and, for 19 years, a practical nurse, and Utz, also a widow and the mother of nine children, had discovered that they shared a strong Christian faith. Cooper described herself as born again. On the evening of February 7th, they had dinner, watched some television, and were avidly discussing the Bible when the doctors arrived. The doctors noted nothing unusual and continued their rounds. When they left, Cooper was lying comfortably on her side with an intravenous tube for antibiotics connected to her left arm. About an hour later, between 9 and 9.15 p.m., an Ohio State nursing student, Carolyn Tyrell Beery, came into room 900 for a routine hourly check and was surprised to see Swango there. Cooper had requested more pain medication, asking Utz to hold the call button down for her because she couldn't reach it and Swango had apparently responded to the call. He was standing at Cooper's bedside, only about three feet from Beery, and the student noticed that he was adding something to Cooper's intravenous tube by inserting a syringe. Her line must have clotted off, was her only thought. She assumed Swango was clearing the blockage. Beery stepped outside to enter data on Utz's chart. She was running late and ready to move on to her next patient when, no more than two minutes later, she heard Utz call out, "'Are you all right, Mrs. Cooper?' Then Beery heard a violent rattling of bed rails, followed by Utz's screams. She rushed into the room. Utz cried out, "'There's something wrong!' Cooper was turning blue and had stopped breathing. Panicked, Beery rushed to the nurse's station for help and returned to the room with a regular nurse, John Sig. Sig took one look at Cooper, then called a code. Two doctors, Reese Freeman, the chief resident in neurosurgery, and Arlo Brakel, another resident, were among the first to arrive, along with several nurses. The genial, easygoing Freeman was referred to by nurses as California Boy, since he'd grown up there. He was also a vitamin and mineral enthusiast, frequently handing out zinc tablets to patients, which the nurses also thought was a very West Coast habit. Brakel was often disheveled and tardy. As a joke, the nurses gave him an alarm clock with two large bells on top. 
Swango, though he had just been in the room, didn't immediately respond to the code. As the senior resident, Freeman, took charge of the emergency. He asked Beery what had happened. Doctor, she said, you know, Dr. Swango was in here and he left. Dr. Swango was in here? Freeman asked, somewhat incredulous, since the doctor's rounds had been concluded some time earlier and Cooper wasn't scheduled for any follow-up visits. What was he doing here? I don't know, Beery said, adding. This doctor's a real jerk. Freeman asked what medication Cooper had taken, and another nurse said it was only codeine, a mild pain remedy. Beery then remarked that she had seen Swango giving Cooper something through the intravenous tube, but the doctors seemed skeptical, and she was convinced that neither of them believed her, probably because she was just a student nurse. Their skepticism may also have been rooted in the hospital custom that nurses, not doctors, adjust IV tubes, as opposed to the more complicated central lines. While doctors may inject drugs directly into IV lines, Cooper hadn't been scheduled for any such medication. With the code and all the commotion in her room, Otz had become hysterical. By her own account, she was screaming like mad, and Freeman ordered her removed. As nurses converged on Utz, she called out that a doctor with blonde hair did something to Mrs. Cooper. Between sobs, she elaborated to the nurses. The blonde-haired doctor had come into the room with a syringe and something yellow that you wrap on your arm when you draw blood. She had heard him tell Cooper that he was going to give her something to make her feel better. Ut said she had watched as the doctor wrapped the yellow tube around Cooper's arm, injected her with a syringe, and then ran from the room. Then Cooper's bed rails began to shake. Utz tried to press her emergency call button, but she couldn't reach it, so she began screaming for attention. By the time Utz had finished her story, she had been moved to a private room down the hall, so only nurses heard the full account. In any event, the doctors at this point were more concerned about saving Cooper than they were about determining the cause of her mysterious paralysis. Brakel later noted that Cooper was not breathing. She was unconscious. She had no movements to any stimulus, even deep pain. But she wasn't dead. She had a good pulse and heartbeat. The doctors checked her pupils and noticed that there was a faint, sluggish reaction to stimuli. But the doctors were surprised by what they called her total flaccidity. She didn't even have any reflexes, as Brakel put it. The doctors inserted a tube down her throat to facilitate breathing. This is normally a painful procedure, but Cooper showed no reaction, and the doctors concluded she was essentially paralyzed. Joe Risley, a nurse's aide, had responded to the code and was standing outside Cooper's room when he heard Beery, who was a friend of his, tell Freeman that Swango had injected something into Cooper's IV. He moved west down the corridor and rounded a corner, checking to make sure there were no other patient emergencies while the medical staff was preoccupied with Cooper. As he neared room 966, Risley saw Swango, wearing his white medical coat, come out of the door. Risley knew Swango had just been in Cooper's room, and knew of no reason why he would be in 966. But what really struck him was a peculiar look of satisfaction on Swango's face when he looked Risley directly in the eye. As Risley later put it, he had a goofy look on his face. It's an old cliché, like a kid with his fingers in the cookie jar. 
I mean, it was basically just a shit-eating grin. The two said nothing to each other as they passed, but Risley, his suspicions aroused, immediately went into the room. On the bathroom sink, located just inside the door, were an 18-gauge needle and a 10cc syringe with the plunger depressed. An 18-gauge needle is large, used on patients only in unusual circumstances when a large dosage needs to be injected at high speed. Lily Jordan, the charge nurse, who supervised other nurses on the floor, was walking by, and Risley asked her if anyone had been assigned to give an injection in room 966. No, she replied, not that she knew of. Risley asked her to look in the bathroom and pointed out the huge needle and syringe. Did you leave that there? No, she said emphatically. I just found it, Risley said. The two thought the location of the abandoned syringe was peculiar, since a sharps container, a box for disposing of used needles and syringes, was located just behind the sink. Risley told Jordan that he'd just seen Swango coming out of the room with a strange look on his face, and the significance of their discovery immediately sank in. Jordan took a paper towel, wrapped it around the syringe and needle, and carefully placed them in a cabinet under the sink. "'You are my witness,' she told Risley, who nodded gravely. Back in room 900, Cooper was responding to resuscitation efforts. Within fifteen minutes she was breathing on her own, and the paralysis throughout the rest of her body quickly eased. Though the tube down her throat prevented her from speaking, she indicated with gestures that she wanted to write a note. The supervising nurse on the floor that evening, Sharon Black, fetched a notebook and pencil and handed them to her. Cooper scrawled, He put something in my IV. Black took the note, dated it, February 7th, 1984, and wrote Cooper's name and patient number on it. Cooper was immediately removed to the intensive care unit, where she again asked for paper and pencil. This time she wrote, Someone gave me some med in my IV and paralyzed all of me, lungs, heart, speech. And someone gave me an injection in my IV and it paralyzed my lungs and heart. As soon as the tube was removed and Cooper could speak, Dr. Freeman asked her what had happened. She reiterated that a blonde-haired person had injected something into her IV. She had seen a syringe in the person's hand. She had never gotten a clear look at this person's face. As soon as he gave her the injection, she felt a blackness spread through her body, beginning in the left arm attached to the IV, then spreading from the left to the right side of her body. She became frightened when she tried to speak and couldn't, and with her dwindling strength began shaking the bed rails to attract attention. Then, she said, she saw a white angel of death at her bedside and stopped breathing. Though Beery had the impression that none of the doctors believed her, Dr. Freeman pursued her declaration that Swango had been in the room. He described Swango to Cooper as a tall, blonde doctor, and asked if he might have been the person Cooper saw inject something in her IV. Cooper replied, yes, it was that person. Freeman ordered a blood test on Cooper to see if the cause of the paralysis could be determined. Freeman returned to the ninth floor where Swango was still on duty, and confronted him with the allegation that he had given Cooper an injection. Swango denied that he had ever been in Cooper's room 
after the doctors finished their rounds. Later, after hearing more reports from nurses, Freeman again asked Swango if he was sure he had never been in the room. Swango repeated that he had had no contact with Cooper. As Freeman later put it, I confronted him and did question him, and he said he was not in the room. Nor did he see her just previous to the incident. With Cooper seemingly safe in intensive care and the immediate crisis over, a sense of shock descended on the nurses. Though none of them had ever confronted anything like this in their careers, they felt that something had to be done. Black, the supervising nurse, told nurses Beery and Jordan to write down everything they could remember, and she did the same. Beery wrote that Swango was in the room, and it appeared that he injected something into Cooper's IV tube. Black collected their statements and placed them in a sealed envelope, which she left for the director of surgical nursing who would be in the next day. Just after 11 p.m., Black also took the unusual step of calling Amy Moore, the head nurse, at home, and told her what had happened. Then Jordan, too, called Moore to tell her about the syringe Risley had found in room 966. Moore was alarmed, especially since she had heard about Swango that same day from Ritchie, who had told her about his involvement in Barrack's death. She told Jordan to retrieve the syringe and place it in her, Moore's, briefcase which was in her office. Moore was already concerned about the startling increase in the number of codes and deaths on the ninth floor of Rhodes Hall in the prior few weeks, though only now did she begin to link them specifically with Swango. On January 14th, just after Swango's meeting with Dr. Hunt, Cynthia Ann McGee, an attractive young gymnast from the University of Illinois, had been found dead in room 901. Six days later, 21-year-old Richard DeLong was found dead in room 964. A nurse had said Dr. Freeman, who responded to a code on DeLong, was definitely stunned by the sudden and mysterious death. Another patient on the ninth floor, 43-year-old Brian Walter, died unexpectedly on January 24th after a nurse found him gasping for air and turning blue. Swango had been working on the floor at the time of all these deaths, and the coincidence was hard to miss. As one nurse, Lynette Brinkman, had put it, there had been more codes on the ninth floor since Swango began his neurosurgery rotation than there had been in the entire prior year. The next morning, Moore went to Jan Dixon, the associate executive director for nursing, the highest-ranking nurse at Ohio State. Dixon had earned high praise for restoring morale and building up the staff after a bitter and debilitating nurses' strike that had preceded her arrival. She loved working at large teaching hospitals and had been in charge of nursing at the University of Kentucky before moving to Columbus. Dixon, 42, had grown up on a farm in northeast Missouri, not far from Swango's hometown of Quincy, where she had relatives. An attractive blonde, she had a warm, down-to-earth manner and the ability to bridge the often large gulf between nurses, doctors, and hospital administrators. She was dating Donald Boyanowski, an associate executive director of the hospital, so she also had unusual access to the hospital's inner workings and politics. Dixon had never encountered a head nurse so shaken and upset. Moore related the previous night's incidents, told how she'd been called at home by both Black and Jordan, and mentioned her fears about the sudden increase in mysterious deaths on the floor where Swango was working. The story was so incredible 
that had Dixon not known Moore so well and trusted her judgment and maturity, she wouldn't have believed it. It was obvious to Dixon that something was terribly wrong in Rhodes Hall. So wrong, in fact, that she thought the police would have to be notified. That, however, was not a decision she could make alone. Dixon dispatched Moore to talk to Dr. Joseph Goodman, a professor of neurosurgery and the attending physician who had operated on Cooper's spine. Dixon also called to arrange a meeting with Donald Cramp, the hospital's executive director and top administrator. Cramp was alarmed and upset, and readily agreed with Dixon that there was an emergency. He immediately called Dr. Manuel Zagornis, the university vice president for health services and dean of the College of Medicine, who scheduled a meeting for six that evening. In Columbus, few figures are viewed with more reverence than Zagornis. The quintessential Ohio boy made good. Though he reported directly to Ohio State's president, Edward H. Jennings, Zagornis was close to members of the hospital's powerful board, some of whom were also university trustees. The board included such local luminaries as Charles Lazarus, chairman of the department store chain, John Wolfe, owner and chairman of the Columbus Dispatch, and Dean Jeffers, chairman of Nationwide Insurance. Zagornis, a native of Youngstown, earned both his bachelor's and medical degrees from Ohio State and was a specialist in endocrinology, the study of the glands and hormones. He had cemented his ties to the hospital board by treating some of its members, not to mention prominent state legislators. Zagornis's cousin, Harry Meschel, was the Ohio State Senate minority leader. And Vernal G. Riffey, Jr., the Speaker of the House of Representatives, was one of Zagornis's patients. Ohio State received $229.4 million in state aid in fiscal 1984. Zagornis had become dean in 1981, transforming the office into a highly visible fundraising position. Charming, sociable, and urbane, Zagornis cultivated not only state legislators, but the local business and professional elite. At the time, Zagornis had been overseeing what was arguably the hospital's most important campaign, the Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, named after an oncologist at Ohio State and initially financed with $40 million from the state government. Ground was about to be broken on the new hospital when the Swango matter surfaced. The new hospital's prestige, success, and future operations depended on Ohio State's ability to attract additional donations, major research grants, and $12 million in additional funding from the state. This potential scandal could not have come at a worse time. Before the scheduled meeting, Dixon summoned Beery and Jordan and asked them to read and sign typed versions of their handwritten statements from the previous night. Jordan took the opportunity to tell Dixon in greater detail about the McGee, DeLong, and Walter deaths and the nursing staff's suspicions of Swango, a topic that was dominating conversation among the nurses that day. Like Moore, Jordan was extremely upset, and Dixon grew even more alarmed. But the nurses were receiving a very different reaction from Dr. Goodman. Though relatively young, Goodman was perceived by some nurses as the epitome of the cold, detached, aloof, even arrogant surgeon. He was especially disdainful of questions from patients. Some complained they couldn't get answers from him, and nurses assigned to work with Goodman were warned that, as one put it, he doesn't have much of a bedside manner. 
though nurses tended to be especially circumspect in Goodman's presence. Moore related the story she'd told Dixon. She told him about Risley's discovery of the syringe. She said she had the syringe in her briefcase. And she mentioned the other mysterious deaths, and the fact that Swango had been present for all of them. Goodman thanked her, then dismissed her without asking any questions or offering further instructions. He said nothing about what to do with the syringe. Goodman's major concern was that the nurse's grapevine, as he later put it, was overreacting and recklessly spreading virulent and unfounded gossip about a fellow doctor. He was annoyed that Swango was being arbitrarily linked to every death or unusual event in the hospital for the past year and felt the situation was getting out of hand. He didn't find anything unusual or suspicious about finding a used syringe on a hospital sink. Dr. Goodman later explained that he didn't know the syringe had been found in a room from which Swango had just emerged. He said he was also under the impression that it had been found the next morning, not the night of Cooper's respiratory arrest. After conferring with Dr. Larry Carey, the chief of surgery, who had been notified by Cramp, Goodman asked Swango to come to his office. He told Swango that questions had been raised about his treatment of Raina Cooper, and said he thought he should take some time off from the hospital until the matter was cleared up. Goodman later observed that Swango appeared calm, even placid. He seemed entirely unaware that there had been any problem the previous night, and didn't show any undue concern or anxiety, a reaction that only reinforced Goodman's suspicion that nurses' gossip was the root of the problem. Goodman didn't ask Swango for any explanation or account of his activities. Dr. Carey, too, spoke to Swango, mentioning that there had been an incident report concerning him that would need to be investigated. Unlike Goodman, Carey did ask Swango specifically whether he had done anything to Cooper or injected anything in her IV. Swango said no, but then volunteered a detailed account that differed sharply from his answers to Dr. Freeman the night before. He said that he had gone into Cooper's room because either Cooper or Utz, Carey couldn't remember which, had told him her feet were cold and asked him to fetch her slippers. He did so and left immediately without doing anything to an IV line. Carey told Swango that a committee would be meeting that evening to consider his status and suggested he wait outside for the results. Dr. Carey also spoke to Dr. Hunt, the head of neurosurgery, who had admitted Swango to the residency program. Goodman was widely viewed as Hunt's protege, though Hunt was more personable and outgoing. Hunt, too, was a graduate of Ohio State's medical school and was a Columbus native. Hunt had been married for years to Charlotte Curtis, long the highest-ranking woman at the New York Times, a member of the paper's editorial board. After her death, he married Carol Miller, a former resident of his who had joined the neurosurgery staff at Ohio State. Hunt had long taken a professional interest in the residence program. As a member of the American Board of Neurological Surgery, he was in charge of graduate medical education. Hunt was urbane and nationally known, spending time in New York and at his summer home on the coast of Maine. Both Hunt and Carey were aware of some cases at other hospitals in which residents sued after being fired, and the hospitals were ordered to reinstate them. They didn't want to be sued by Swango as a result of unfounded charges and nurses' gossip, and then be ordered to reinstate him. 
Hunt immediately called Cramp, the hospital's executive director, and said a lawyer should attend that evening's meeting. Hunt thus appears to have been the first person involved in the matter who recognized that the situation might threaten Ohio State with possible legal liability. Besides fears of a lawsuit by Swango, there were also possible suits by patients to consider. The questions about Swango coincided with what is generally referred to as the second malpractice insurance crisis. The first of these occurred in the mid-1970s, when doctors' insurance premiums shot up on average 500%. During the second crisis in the mid-1980s, the U.S. General Accounting Office reported that malpractice insurance costs for physicians nearly doubled between 1983 and 1985 rising from $2.5 billion to $4.7 billion. The St. Paul Fire and Marine Insurance Company, the largest underwriter of medical malpractice insurance, reported a 55% increase in claims from 1980 to 1984. And the GAO reported that damage awards increased over 100% in some states in the same period. This crisis received enormous publicity, especially in the medical press, and fueled intense concern and resentment on the part of many doctors. The issue of potential legal liability was especially sensitive at Ohio State, because as a large state-financed and taxpayer-supported institution, the university was largely self-insured. Though individual doctors carried malpractice insurance and were subject to the explosion in premium costs, judgments against the hospitals, the medical school, or the university itself were paid by the university which meant the money ultimately came out of taxpayers' pockets. Because of Ohio State's unusual status, the office of the Ohio Attorney General, an elected official, served as the university's lawyer. One assistant attorney general, Robert Holder, maintained an office on the Ohio State campus and worked full-time on university matters, including issues at the medical college. Indeed, Holder and Zagurnas had worked closely together and had become friends. Cramp called Holder, who was out that day. He then called Richard Jackson, vice president of the university for business and finance. Jackson, in turn, asked Alphonse Cincione, a probate lawyer with a downtown Columbus law firm, to represent the university at the meeting. The group convened at 6.30 that evening in a large conference room at the university hospital. Zagornis did not attend, nor did Michael Whitcomb the hospital's medical director, whom no one had been able to reach. Dixon was there as head of nursing, as were hospital administrators Cramp and Boyanowski. Cincioni functioned as legal counsel. The only doctors present were Goodman, Carey, and Hunt. Goodman and Hunt had already expressed their skepticism of the nurses' claims. Just a few years earlier, Carey had hired and brought to Ohio State a surgeon with a criminal record. The surgeon, an old friend of Carey's, had been fined and sentenced to six months' hard labor after pleading guilty to eleven counts of attempted sodomy, indecent assault, committing lewd and indecent acts, and using his position to solicit sexual favors from women subordinates while he was chief of surgery at a Philadelphia hospital. Though the prosecutor had characterized the offenses as crimes of violence, crimes that shock the conscience, in 1982, Carey recommended to the Ohio Medical Board that the doctor be licensed to practice medicine, saying that the sex crimes were misbehavior at worst. 
From my point of view, they are not the kind of charges that ought to permanently damage a man's career. Zagornis had approved hiring the surgeon, even after Carey informed him of the doctor's criminal record. The doctor received psychiatric treatment, and there have been no further incidents reported at Ohio State. The doctor remains on the medical faculty. Knowing this history, Dixon considered the possibility that the doctor's first instinct might be to rally around Swango, a fellow doctor. She had seen how protective of one another doctors were, both at Ohio State and in other hospitals where she had worked. Yet these circumstances were extraordinary, with the lives of patients possibly at stake. She took the lead, presenting the evidence she had been able to collect during the course of the day. She reviewed the Cooper incident, described Utz's observations, mentioned the syringe found by Risley, and briefly reviewed the McGee, DeLong, Walter, and Barrack cases. Then she listened with mounting dismay as the doctors undercut the gravity of her disclosures. She thought the doctors seemed more concerned about Swango's rights than they did the patients' lives. Hunt immediately cast doubt on anything Utz might have said, noting that she was awaiting treatment for a brain tumor. The group discussed what might have caused Cooper's respiratory arrest, and while conceding that a toxic drug might be one explanation, the doctors noted that there might also be many others. Dixon and Boyanowski thought the evidence was sufficiently serious and compelling that the police should be notified. Cincioni, the lawyer, disagreed and said there was no evidence any crime had been committed, nor was there enough evidence to know how to proceed. Cincioni recommended that the hospital's medical staff, the doctors, conduct a discreet internal investigation. Dixon, Boyanowski, and Cramp all thought it was a mistake for the hospital to try to investigate itself, but they deferred to Cincioni's legal judgment. Dixon was expressly ordered not to question any nurses further. This because of the fear, first expressed by Dr. Goodman, that to do so would only fuel the nurses' tensions and concerns, which might in turn alarm patients. Instead, Goodman himself who from the outset had been highly skeptical of the nurse's claims, took charge of the investigation. He agreed to report his findings to the group at a meeting the following Saturday morning. The meeting ended at about 8 p.m. Swango had been sitting on a bench in the lobby. Dr. Carey suggested he go home for a few days because of the incident report. Swango took the news calmly. Dixon was upset by the meeting but felt if she could only get her message across to Zagornis, whom she knew and respected, he would surely recognize how serious the situation was. She couldn't reach the dean, so she called Holder, the assistant attorney general, who had been briefed on the meeting by Cincione to try the same tack. She asked him to meet with her in her office, which he did the next day. Holder insisted on deferring to Cincione's judgment that there wasn't any credible evidence of a crime, and they should await the result of Goodman's investigation. But he did agree to pass on Dixon's request to meet with Sigourney's. The next day, Dixon narrated the alarming events to the dean. She thought he at least listened carefully. Sigourney seemed to recognize the gravity of the matter, and though he made no commitments, she felt she was making headway. All righty. That will do us until next Thursday, I uh, will pick up in Chapter 3, Catherine Massey Book Club at the Cows, the number two dial, 
605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 605 313 5164. The code 564934 pound. Press star 61 if you would com get in uh, email number two at the top then nab our callers get my notes in as well <clears throat> uh, let's see hi Gus cows audience and callers I had not heard of Michael Swango and his crimes before something tells me that the extent of his killings is unknown as I doubt very much that he started murdering people after he qualified as a doctor after all he seemed very keen to get the ambulance job which he did not which he did while moonlighting. I wonder why. I already had some folks who said that's probably why he got placed on the no contact with patients. He was probably killing folks there too. Two, why did the author start the book with Michael Swango's employment in Africa? I suspect because Michael Swango shrewdly deduced it was a place he could kill with virtual impunity, question mark, just as racist pedophiles go to so-called third world countries to abuse children living in poverty. Is the author implying White supremacy was taking place without explicitly stating it. Man, Rena Cooper, I think black female, that would greatly impact how we process what we just heard right there. Man, that's one you would actually have to watch. Justice Files to see, oh, wait a minute, this is a black female. Hmm. Tell her she doesn't know what she's talking about. Crazy. Hmm. Hmm. Three. So the doctors in the African hospital were ecstatic to have recruited Swango and couldn't believe he chose to work in Africa, yet shortly after he arrived, had to send him to another hospital so that he could gain experience needed to be of any use to them. I guess being white was the only qualification needed to get the job. That's often the case. Four. And they bought him a car because he felt isolated. Would they have done the same for a black doctor? Something tells me not. Five, the doctor who held drug parties, who mentored Swango and vouched for him when others raised concerns about his incompetence, later claimed he knew nothing about Swango's background. So what? He must have known Swango was incompetent. That should have been enough to put a halt to his medical career. Incompetence generally doesn't stop white people. Hmm. Six, <clears throat> He fantasized about children being burned alive after their school bus crashed. This only seemed weird to his colleague. They didn't see a need to report him. That is more than a red flag. Yeah, but I mean, that sort of thing is, I mean. Reb and vodka. I don't know, man. I mean. Yeah, the faces of death. You said, I don't know. I I agree, but that sort of thing is so 
wide spread. Would you see Dahmer's fangirl and all that? Like, woof, it'd be a lot of red flags. Until justice at gmail.com. Let's see, I guess I can finish uh, the last email that I started, email number one, since we didn't get that far. Now I can get to the rest of it. We left off in chapter three. Let's see. So supporter, we already got those lies. Chapter three. Dr. Hunt, head of neurosurgery, Charlotte Hunt, New York Times, married Carol Miller, former resident. They didn't want to be sued by Swango as a result of unfounded charges and nurses gossip and then be ordered to reinstate him possible lawsuits by patients. The second malpractice insurance crisis. Additionally, embarrassment and fear by Chairman Hunt, if it got out about that janky Dean's letter, may have also played. Oh, that's right, that he didn't even read. He didn't even read it. Say, we told you it's written right there. You didn't even read it. Got lost in his blue eyes. Number five, uh, Carrie hired, had hired and brought to Ohio State a surgeon with a criminal record. The surgeon, an old friend of Carrie's, had been fined and sentenced to six months hard labor after pleading guilty to 11 counts of attempted sodomy. Jesus Christ, Jeffrey Dahmer indecent assault Jeffrey Dahmer committing lewd and indecent acts Jeffrey Dahmer and using his position position to solicit sexual favors from women subordinates while he was chief of surgery at a Philadelphia at a Philadelphia in 1982 care recommended to the Ohio Medical Board that the doctor be licensed to practice medicine saying that sex crimes were misbehavior at worst white people don't get fired they get transferred and even here hired of an <laughs> what in the Bill Cosby I even like man even six months hard labor you plead guilty to 11 counts of attempted sodomy. <laughs> like, should you have to register as a sex offender I'm being serious like is that am I being retarded 11 counts of attempted sodomy. Isn't that a uh, sex offender? Indecent assault, committing lewd acts. Shouldn't you have to register as a sex offender? I feel like it should be difficult. It should be a challenge for you to even get a job, you know, at Hardee's. Carl Jr.'s, you know, making chicken nuggets. It should be kind of a challenge. Like, man, they look at my rate. Whoa, 7-Eleven. That's okay. We can't just, can't just have anybody flipping out chicken nuggets. How do you get a job at the hospital at the Ohio State? You got to. What do it mean to be white? Six. Nor did Goodman interview any of the nurses who witnessed the events or the orderly who discovered the syringe or Utz, Cooper's roommate. He did not ask to see the syringe still in nurse Moore's custody. He didn't speak to any witnesses to any of the patient's deaths such as Nurse Ritchie. No autopsies or physical tests were ordered for any of the possible victims, nor were any experts in toxicology or anesthesia consulted for possible explanations of the death. I suspect Goodman's <clears throat> I suspect Goodman was covering up for Chairman Hunt, protecting the Mafia Don, so to speak. Moreover, if the chairman gets caught up gets caught up, his underlings, Goodman, are probably also at risk since he is the one who hired them. Like when an NFL head coach gets fired, the assistants are fired with them. It seems like with that big 
like hundred million dollar investment project in the new cancer wing like man we have got way too much money to be messing around with some sort which that's all the more reason why can't we just fire him get a lawyer buddy do what you're gonna do we got millions hundreds of millions we can lawyer up to we can drag this thing out in court we got lots of white people who seem to think that you did do something incorrect lawyer up white people do that all the time I don't understand it would take years like they'd have the building would be completing everything by the time you get through the court process and appeals and everything if they fight this whole thing out if they say that you do have to reinstate him but I mean dang just pull out the record tell the truth sometimes it seems like just telling the truth that would be the easier ah, well, nah, nah, nah. I'm not going to do that right on uh, let's see email until justice at gmail.com star six one for folks they have thoughts on the second component of the audio get some of my notes and then we'll make sure everybody's good for our second installment on blind eye I can't say enough I so wish that they had the racial classifications really of everybody the doctors particularly the victims the patients are reading it like I said this book, I think you would read it totally differently if we had gone through this and I didn't know Rena Cooper was a black person. Like, oh, okay, blah, blah, blah. Putting words in her mouth. Okay, blah, blah. Man, wait a minute. Pause. <laughs> like, okay, this is a black female. And they go to report, well, y'all are just spreading rumors. And... <sighs> Police. Ah, Please, like, man, let's see. Um,. And then they should have been talking about this every day during the Rona, right? Got a white dude want to stick a needle in there. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's see. Okay, section two, my second set of notes. Um, I'd like to know uh, Rena Cooper's roommate, Awonia Utz. I'd like to know if she's black as well because they're saying she's being hysterical and all that I'd be hysterical too if some some white dude comes in white coat blonde hair or no comes in and tries to kill someone I've just been talking to and all the rest of it I'd be losing my mind too like what in the what man uh and they got to do all the the rattling of the the bed rails and all that like I cannot even imagine all of this and if that hadn't been happening, she easily could have died. And I think uh, Miss Cooper, if she hadn't insisted on writing a note because they had the breathing tube in her mouth so she couldn't speak, to write a note that he put something in my IV, this could have went really different as well. She insisted on that. And even her, uh, what do you call that, roommate? Yeah, roommate. Miss um, Utz, her saying that that blonde doctor, he came in here and being insistent about that was this a black person non-white person one and then you know just speaking up using her voice at least they got that on the record add that to the paper trail that there's this guy's a killer and you white people just keep making excuses for him transferring him down the road and trying to make sure that you don't get become culpable in all of this uh, let's see so they're trying to figure out what's going on the doctor seemed skeptical skeptical and she was convinced that neither of them believed her probably because she was just a student nurse there's a lot of that too where these nurses are saying something now this might be one where they jump and say see see it is sexism it is sexism see see we got the patriarch eh. 
system of racism, white supremacy, that H word I said before, hierarchy. Sometimes you got white women at the top. Sometimes you got white men who are more powerful. But at the end of the day, it is all white people who are going to be making the decision. That is the most important part. But yes, you do have a system of hierarchy here. Absolutely. These nurses, you're less powerful. So we tell you to shut up too. If you are saying whatever and you got suspicions of this white doctor, get out of here. You're lower. You just do as you're told. And they just move on up the chain of command. Uh, let's see. I don't know how this would have been different too if this had been fast forward mm, 30 years later and you'd have cameras everywhere, like everywhere, phones and all the rest of it. Like, I don't know. Then you might have video footage to walk, walk, walk back and timestamp all the rest of it. When was he? Did he drop the IV off? All the rest of it might be a little different too. Let's see. Cooper as uh, Swango neared room 966. Risley saw Swango wearing his white medical coat come out of the door. Risley knew Swango had just been in Cooper's room and knew of no reason he would be in 966. But what really struck him was a peculiar look of satisfaction on Swango's face when he looked Risley directly in the eye. As Risley later put it, he had a goofy look on his face. It's an old cliche like a kid with his fingers in the cookie jar. I mean, it was basically just a shit eating grin. I don't really use that phrase. I'm not really sure what that is. The cookie jar metaphor, I've heard that one before, but I've heard many people, victims really, uh, talk about Swango and they describe this same grin. Some of them use the same uh, metaphor talking about seeing him after one of their loved ones died or was killed or in this case survived, but saying that he had this, he, Michael Swango, had look like finger was caught I did it Ooh-wee. I got him that time they not yeah buddy like wow like I mean <laughs> getting the thrill I think one of the callers mentioned it that word thrill is in the word guide Mr. Fuller talks about that why practice white supremacy racism thrill you in fact you heard Virgil said I'm bored Chris Kyle American sniper I'm bored I don't just want to be a dad sit around here and change diapers teach my child to read take care of my wife make sure the lawn gets mowed I don't want to do that I'm going to go shoot kill some people yeah yeah that's the ticket yeah go see a car crash yeah thrills Mr. Fuller talks about that exactly what is all of this about Fuller even said that he's heard white people say peace who wants that that's boring sound like Virgil that's boring want to go do some killing yeah and we have Osama to go get yeah correct myself from earlier I said Dennis Rodman thought he went to old Vietnam he did not Dennis Rodman went to North Korea mixed up my non-white areas of the world uh, let's see. 
Cooper was Rena Cooper was immediately removed to the intensive care unit where she again asked for pencil and paper. This time she wrote someone gave me some med in my IV and paralyzed all of me lungs, heart, speech. And someone gave me an injection in my IV and it paralyzed my lungs and heart. Now, that's all in quotes. Now, part of me is like, wow, you almost died. Poisoned and all of that couldn't even breathe on your own they got to stick a breathing tube in your lungs and rena cooper black female fought to get that pin boom i'm gonna scratch this down like that is geez black self-respect but that said they come say ah she's got brain problems she doesn't know what's going on we got to sit here and listen to you cast aspersions rumors on this blonde blue-eyed white doctor get on out of here and you're out of your mind. You're a little batty. You're in the hospital after all. And your English is messed up and all that. So, yeah, you, you probably don't even know what happened. Hush all that up. Shh, being hysterical. Like I said, this section reads way different. Like, oh, this is a black female? Hmm. Hmm. Uh, said, as soon as Tube was removed from Cooper and she could speak, Dr. Freeman asked her what happened. She reiterated that a blonde haired person had injected something into her IV. She had a, she had seen a syringe in the person's hand. She had never gotten a clear look at the person's face. As soon as he gave her the injection, she felt a blackness and that's in quotes spread through her body, beginning in the left arm attached to the IV, then spreading from the left to the right side of her body. Then she said she saw a white angel of death death at her bedside and stopped breathing now one it's odd for me most of the time it's blonde haired is followed by blue eyed wholesome all American genius beautiful gorgeous lovely most attractive thing ever it is never followed by some ghastly accusation that that blonde haired person he did it he did it he tried to kill us. He had to like, what? <laughs> like, what? That's just odd one. Then the blackness. No uh, issue with Miss Cooper. She's about to die, but just man, it's always got to be the encroaching blackness. That is a problem. And I did appreciate that the angel of death white might have been uh what you call michael swango still hanging out there waiting with that uh what is it the the, the grin with his hand in the cookie jar standing there yes mm-hmm. <laughs> angel of death and it's michael swango come on come on that is one of the few times that i hear where white in some sort of metaphor uh is not associated with something powerful innocent pure life affirming godly spiritual it is never never death killing same thing with the blonde hair uh cynthia ann mcgee is white now see cynthia ann mcgee an attractive young gymnast from the university of illinois white attractive white blonde just all goes together uh, we got a shout out for the universe. Oh, and see, it happened right again. Came on the very next page. We had that with Cynthia uh, Ann McGee, the young gymnast that Michael Swango killed. They didn't even uh, recognize that as one of his deaths until way down. They were like, dang, we think he got her too. Dang. Uh, let's say, 
Jan Dixon, Associate Executive Director for Nursing, uh, that she loved working at large teaching hospitals and had been in charge of the nursing of nursing at the University of Kentucky. Just talked about that with Bill Russell, Adolph Rupp, don't allow Negros down there before moving to Columbus, Ohio. Dixon, 42, had grown up on a farm in northeast Missouri, not far from Swango's hometown of Quincy. She was probably on a sundown town, too, where she had relatives, an attractive blonde. She had a warm, down-to-earth manner and ability to bridge the often large gulf between nurses, doctors, and hospital administrators. Hierarchy. But again, maybe that was how she was able to bridge that gulf because she's an attractive blonde. They can do all things. Uh, let's see. All of this uh, cronyism where all these people know each other and they know other powerful white people and they can leverage that to get millions of dollars of funding for the university and all of that. That's basically the system of white supremacy racism. That's how they get all these jobs and things. That's even how Michael Swango can get hooked up. He's friends with Dr. Wasaker. I think that's how you say it. He gives him a glowing review and all of that. All of this cronyism, all of this nepotism and hooking up people and he's a friend of my wife and this is my uh, husband's cousin and all that old nonsense. That's the system of white supremacy right there. This is not about looking out for whoever is competent, smart and intelligent, deserves this spot. We got look, we are hiring attempted sodomites. And they appear at the prestigious Ohio State University. <clears throat> Let's see. Oh, and then we got another shout out from Maine. Dr. Hunt had taken a professional interest in the residence program as a member of the American Board of Neurological Surgery. He was in charge of the graduate medical education. Hunt was urbane, refined, nationally known, spending time in New York and at his summer home on the coast of Maine. I am very sure he did not have lots of Negro neighbors hanging out. New England, summertime, get a little swim time. They got whole books where they keep Negroes away from beachfront property. Uh, and, and even this one, I thought, who is this dude? The sodomite that they mentioned where he had a, a extensive criminal record, six months of hard labor, and they get all this information in advance and still hire him. Who is this dude? Why can we not get his name? If this had been Bill Cosby, Gus T, some Negro, and I hadn't done hard time on the chain gang 11 counts that's a dozen folks attempted sodomy and you don't even give the name just oh yeah they hired you know. and he's still <laughs> like come on Woo, white and that's that's all through this book they have all these shh keep quiet no we don't need to contact police uh, shh keep quiet we'll just run a discreet investigation into Swango. We don't want to make ways and make, make all this no shh. Let's see. All this protection, white doctors protecting each other. That's another one where I think it's important that this is, we're talking about white people. If it was diverse, as they say, if you had a lot of non-white doctors and employees at Ohio State and their medical program and oncology department, I don't think you would have all this. Because it's exclusively white people, pretty much. Oh, yeah, we look out for each other. Oh, no, I don't care how many patients died, iatrogenic deaths, 
accidental air bubbles got in the tube. That's not a reason to be firing old Dr. Hunt now. Wait a minute. He should have done better, but, you know, we all got a tough month. Come on now. Let's see. She said the doctors, uh, they're talking about some of the nurses where they're trying to come in and tell what happened with uh, Rena Rena Cooper and some of these other near deaths or deaths. Uh, She says the doctors uh, undercut the gravity of her concerns. White people do that all the time when looking out for each other. They can minimize anything, no matter the crime. Uh, Let's see. He said Hunt immediately cast doubt on anything Utz might have said, noting that she was awaiting treatment for a brain tumor. That's why I said I would like to know, is Miss Utz, is this a black person? Is this a non-white person or a white person that we're just dismissing anything? I don't care what you say. Get out of here. That to me sounds very niggerish. I could be totally incorrect and I have no evidence to. That's just, I don't care what this person has to say. Could be, maybe not. We'll see. Uh, Dixon and Boyanowski thought the evidence was sufficiently serious and compelling that the police should be notified. Sicioni, the lawyer, disagreed and said there was no evidence any crime had been committed. We had that in the audio today from the justice files. If you had two witnesses who said this person tried to kill me, that's an investigation. That's nothing to talk. Orenthal James. He had the knife. He had the syringe. Al Sharpton. He had the knife. He had the syringe. I almost died. I couldn't fit. They are coming to investigate and you might be in handcuffs today. It's not going to be. Let me sleep on it. I'll come back and talk to you. I don't know. That that rental dude is pretty cool. Let me think on it. We'll come back and check in with you later this week. (laughs) I don't think so. I don't think so. Any hoodles? Uh, let's see. Uh, folks, we missed that. Mama C, woke baby. Any thoughts? The second component, second audio. Oh, I missed it. Thought I had. There we go. Oh. Oops, sorry. Okay. Um, just to just to add something from the last um, the last section, part one. It, it mentioned that um, when discussing the Ruth Barrick uh, death. Swango, Dr. Swango was watching very coolly from the back as uh, Ruth Barrett passed away and Richie, I think the nurse, attempted to resuscitate her. And Swango got sexual excitement from watching the patient die. And so voyeurism, um, we'll probably see that a lot, like uh, these serial killers enjoy watching their patients die um, at their hands. Uh, the author mentioned that OSU, the hospital, um, the university, and and whatnot, is like a city unto itself. It's kind of like Disney World or Disneyland in Florida, whichever one that is, or the DFW, Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. Like, it has its own police force, policies, and rules of operation, and kind of, um, it can keep everything within the of the university, And as mentioned by Gus, like the Columbus police force were not notified yet. The author describes all the social connections um, of all these administrators from the dean down to um, like 
the um, the different people in the departments, like neurosurgery or the the nursing staff and whatnot, um, and how nepotism influences the motivation of the hospital staff administrators, and kind of keeps them from acting in a way that would negatively affect OSU's hospital. And the author mentioned that this was at poor timing, like the, the scandal or controversy around, um, you know, Dr. Swingo potentially killing patients. It came at um, a, a poor time because OSU was attempting to build a, a new hospital and trying to attract donors and grant money and state funding negative media attention would undermine this project. So something that I kept noting was you have to you have to really look at what is the motivation of some of these from the dean to the hospital staff to the administrators like why are they not trying to um, seek truth or do the complete unbiased investigation. Um, one of the nurses uh, she realized, you know, she started making connections and she said there were more codes, like code blues, on the ninth floor since Swango began his his rotations than the entire year prior. And I think I did, like, a calculation. There were six patients in, like, a three-week time. Four of them were dead and two were in, in intensive care. Uh, Cynthia McGee, she was the gymnast. She and She died. Marina Cooper almost died with the black woman, and I can, I would assume that her roommate was also black or at least non-white, given her name. Uh, Swango took advantage of the strained communication between the nurses and the doctors to be able to do what he was doing, and also, um, I, I think he probably had great insight into um, how how the administrators and hospital staffs would be conflicted about trying to pursue um, a complete investigation on him um, because of the reasons I described above. Like they didn't want to get involved with anything legal or attracting media attention about one of their their resident doctors being, you know, a murderer. Um, they did schedule a, a meeting and by the dean not attending the scheduled meeting to discuss this situation with Swango, he kind of set the for all the administrators, nurses, doctors, that this was not an urgent nor an important um, meeting for him. And as a result, everyone, him, all the subordinates were kind of cavalier and were just like, okay, this can be dismissed. There's nothing else to talk about. Um, we had our meeting, we talked, no disciplinary action was taken. And Dr. Goodman, who completed the investigation, he was biased. He, he was already, um, you know, he already uh, wanted to side with with the doctor. And so we always talk about the, the blue wall, blue wall of silence. So in this case, it was like the, the white coat of silence. You know, you got to back the doctors, support the doctors at all costs. And with that, I'll end my share. Got at least one more vote from Mama C and Woke Baby. You'll say they both voted. They think uh, that Miss Utz is also a non-white person. Uh, Miss Cooper, uh, if folks have any doubts, you can see her. She's in the Justice Files, uh, the little segment that I played today. They speak with her directly. You can see her. To me, is no doubt about it. Black female. Think that her roommate, Miss Utz, may have been a black female, too, which 
I submit, I think that would definitely be a part of the, oh yeah, this is, you know, nigger rumors and, but, and sitting up yelling about that blonde haired man, did sound like Al Sharpton, hush all that up and messing up this good white man's name and let's move forward and not mess up the funding for OSU. Go Buckeyes. I could easily see that being the exact sort of mentality that they proceed with. Um, let's see. I think we we got all the hands. Much obliged to uh, Mama C, all our folks, victim in New Jersey, fresh princess in Philly. Hope you are feeling uh, much, much better. Uh, shout to her mom as well. Uh, we'll pick back up next week as we kind of proceed through the text some of the major themes that we heard this week they are going to come back up throughout this book white people covering for other white people's criminal activity the nepotism and all of this how does he keep getting all of these jobs right on nope does no everybody takes that same position what you see the dean's letter i didn't read the dean's letter what are you talking about dean's letter man me and mike we came in we had a great conversation i didn't even read his resume man everybody does that Come on, man. Anywho, uh, if you do not know those names as we're rocking on through this book, I will catch you up later. But I mean, really, Robert Haddon, you should know right now. They've been talking about him. They did whole beefy segments on Democracy Now!, my BFF, Amy Goodman, many other outlets, especially if you're in the Northeast, any collections to Columbia. Well, I mean, beyond that, but we just spent all that time talking about OBGYN. Swango failed. That course had to take it over. And and doctors sodomizing patients. That's Robert Haddon. So that's for sure. If you miss Lucy Letby and all this, feel like we've been talking about her for a while. Got to know that one too. And then Harold Shipman. I said very beginning of the year. Nairobi Thompson. She was leading us to Michael Swango. Now that is the other side of the world. But I mean, hey, white people do the same thing all over the known universe. Lucy Letby's on the other side of the world. You should know all of those names, and we will by the time we get to the end of this book. Matter of time. We will be back uh, tomorrow, neutralizing workplace racism. Sobriety would be best. Don't need cirrhosis of the liver either. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling no gossiping, no throwaway offspring. And for sure, for this book, man, let's do everything we can to take extraordinary care of ourselves so we can stay out of the clutches of race soldiers in white lab coats. Miss Cooper said the white angel of death. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.